Little Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen to get you going on this Friday morning. Technical producer Sam Brooks. I was going to say turning it up to 10, but I don't want to push buttons and tempt you and dare you to do it. I think on this board, I've never actually turned anything up to 10. I think like 10 is like over the limit. Yeah. It's, we've got a board with a bit of horsepower behind it, don't we? <laughs> yeah. You Have I been overcompensating this week? I've been talking about our Ferrari fast internet and, and, our, and our board that can turn down the suck and... You know, with a shout out to the boys from FUBAR and, and, and blast us all away. Maybe it is. Why don't we take the Uncle Sam cam quickly for those that are joining us on YouTube to see this fresh and tight new haircut. Good morning. Yeah. I, is this uh, your first haircut in months? Months. I got a haircut the week before we went on air. And then there's been not haircuts for a while. <laughs> and and I finally uh, finally took the plunge yesterday and, and got a little bit tidied up. You're looking sharp. Does it, you. does it change your perspective? Does it change the Absolutely. way that you feel? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, a little, little I, more jump in the step. Absolutely, my life has completely changed. I love it. Well, I'm happy to hear it because your life was just obviously a complete disaster before. Absolutely. Sam. So I'm glad you can finally turn it around. The new uncle, the guy that never stops smiling, uh, the great Samuel G. Brooks. We have a great show in store. Uh, Doctor Katie Mack is joining us. We wouldn't typically say this because it's kind of a weird thing to say. Um, because it'll make you start wondering about all of our guests and where they were in the pecking order, where they were in the request order. This might actually be a fun uh, kind of an, an element to introduce to say this next guest was our 11th choice. Uh, the first <laughs> the first 10 expert voices were busy, uh, but number 11 here is coming through. This is the, what I want to say here is that astrophysicist Dr. Katie Mack was our first choice uh, when we started. I mean, we were captivated like you maybe were yesterday with the landing of, of Mars Perseverance, uh, this rover we're going to learn about coming up in, in just a few minutes when Dr. Mack joins us. Super exciting stuff. There's a whole uh, there are a whole bunch of factors that really elevate this beyond some of the other cool space stories that we've seen in recent memory. And, and uh, Katie's going to take us into this and talk about her new book as well, which is uh, basically describing um, well, uh, how it's all going to end for us. And uh, but she says that it's not an inherently negative book. So very much looking forward to Dr. Katie Mack. Uh, looking forward to our roundtable today. That's coming up in about a half an hour from now. Our traditional Friday Real Talk roundtable takes on Black History Month and celebrates Black History Month through uh, the perspectives of three different individuals that will join us from very different walks of life. Uh, one in politics and public affairs, uh, one in creative arts, and one uh, a former pro athlete now uh, in education. So I'm very much looking forward to Eric Domont. Andrew Parker and Sam Hart to Kest coming up in about a half hour's time. And then our conversation yesterday, which has just exploded on Twitter, by the way, uh, it's actually proving right now to be um, I'm rolling out a bunch of like brags and statistics. I'm not I'm just I'm just telling stories. That's yeah. all I'm trying to yeah, do. I know you are. I'm yeah. not I'm yeah, not bragging. It's just it's just a point of interest. A thing happened. We got to talk about it. A thing happened. Uh, Dr. Juniper Simonis joined me yesterday out of Portland. Uh, Dr. Simonis was talking about, you know, the story at the Fred Meyer supermarket, the dumpster. But, you know, reportedly between nine and 12 police officers were there guarding the dumpster. So people couldn't get their hands on this food, the food that was going to spoil because Fred Meyer, as part of these rolling blackouts in Oregon and California and other states, had lost power to its refrigeration and its freezers. And obviously, that's a problem if you have a grocery store. 
So so we have Dr. Simonis on the show to talk about this. Well, all of a sudden, the interview just goes nuts on the World Wide Web. Like, as I'm looking right now, 135,000 views of that interview that was like not even 24 hours ago, coming up on 24 hours ago. So so pretty interesting. It obviously resonated with a lot of people. A lot of you real talkers were in touch with us um, saying, hey, listen, the, the topic of food waste, there are people in communities across Canada we heard from some of you in the United States. Some of you in Europe are writing in. <clears throat> I'm going to read an email from Rory in Scotland today. Uh, some of you are writing in saying, here's what people are doing in our community uh, to ensure that we waste as little food as possible. It's one of the things that I think we're, we're all, or at least most of us, are guilty of to a certain degree. But what are people doing to ensure that we waste as little as possible and maximize the food that we do have and ensure that we address uh, another big issue, which is, of course, hunger and people living in poverty. So Garnet Borch will join me uh, in about an hour and a half from now, about 90 minutes from now. Um, you can check out rescuefood.ca. It's called the Leftovers Foundation. and We're going to find out what they're doing to ensure that food gets in the hands of people who need it. Uh, <clears throat> let's talk about the Red Planet in just a moment, first of all, I uh, want to, of course, remind you about our presenting sponsor. Uh, th- this is more forward-looking subject matter. The subject of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin well has been the definitive source uh, for good information. The easiest way to buy and sell Bitcoin, especially if you want to talk to an expert about it, uh, based out of Edmonton, but proudly featuring Bitcoin ATMs across Canada. And they're going public this year. Oh, yeah. And they're moving to a brand new big office. Well, some parts of the economy seem to be contracting. Bitcoin Well has expanded its staff like 300% this year. What a remarkable story. You can learn more about the company and what they do by following the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Chances are you were paying attention Yesterday, right around four o'clock Eastern, uh, around one o'clock Pacific, as the United States became the only country to land a spacecraft on Mars. It was a huge day for space exploration as NASA successfully landed the Perseverance rover uh, Thursday afternoon. Some of its first images already being sent back to Earth. Now, keep in mind this monumental for, for many reasons, including the fact that for more than 60 years Many attempts to land these rovers have failed unsuccessfully when it comes to Mars. Uh, our leadoff guest this morning is 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 one of the go to's, uh, if you will, uh, when it comes to those around the world that are paying keen attention to this uh, and those whose opinions people strive to hear about. It's a real thrill to welcome to the program uh, an astrophysicist. Uh, she's got a brand new book. We can't wait to talk about it. The end of everything. Dr. Katie Mack. Doctor, welcome to Real Talk. Uh, thanks for having me. So there's going to be your your professional informed perspective. And, and I know you can take us down these these wonderful avenues of why this was so cool. But was there a part of you yesterday just as a human being that was as or even more wide eyed than the rest of us? Um, I, I was uh, just completely on the edge of my seat all day yesterday. I was so nervous about the landing. Um, there's so many things that could have gone wrong. And they pulled it off and it went perfectly. And we got a couple of pictures right away. It was just truly an amazing thing. And I'm so excited for the science that's going to come out of it. So, Katie, this has been uh, a mission. I mean, obviously, years in the making. And and we can maybe talk a little bit about what goes into this type of exercise. But even the launch itself, I mean, this has been uh, the wheels have been in motion on this for months and months. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. It launched uh, over the summer, so it's been it's been on for a really long time. But the development of the mission goes back, you know, decades. Really, the the this mission is uh, very similar to the Curiosity rover that's been running around on Mars for a while. Uh, in terms of, it's a very similar sort of machine. Um, so it's using a lot of the same kind of hardware, and it used a lot of the same. Uh, it used the same kind of landing uh, process, which is this incredibly complicated, detailed, uh, difficult process to get this thing onto the ground safely. So, you know, the the background for this this rover, the the development for this rover goes back a really long time. Katie, we're seeing now some footage released, uh, obviously some CGI here and then shots of mission control. Can, can you explain to us what makes this landing, what made it so challenging and what makes it so remarkable? Yeah, so the problem with landing on Mars is that it has just enough atmosphere to be a, be a problem to make it really difficult and not enough to make it easy. So if it were a thick atmosphere, you could come down on a parachute the whole way and you'd be all right. If it were no atmosphere at all, like the moon, you could just come down on, on gentle retro rockets and be fine. But uh, the problem with Mars is that when you come in, uh, you hit enough atmosphere that the, the spacecraft could burn up. And so you need a heat shield, you need to deal with that and slow down. But then there's not enough atmosphere to actually get you to a soft landing. So then you need to have a supersonic parachute and then you need some like ro- rockets to hold it above the ground for a while. And then they have this complicated thing where they lower it down on a, on a sort of pull in a, a on ropes, you know, coming down off of the rockets so that it'll land uh, softly. I mean, it's just it's just a really complicated process when you have something that heavy and you have to get it through enough atmosphere to be difficult, but not enough atmosphere to be helpful. Absolutely amazing. And so the uh, I find myself I'm trying to use words that make it sound like I know what I'm talking about and I don't. I was about <laughs> I was about to ask you about payload, and then I thought I think that might be a shuttle term. I'm not quite sure. But can we talk about what it was carrying? My understanding is the rover is about the size of an SUV. It's got a drone mm-hmm. with it, so it'll be able to do some pretty pretty amazing exploring. What is what is this? What do we have yeah. now on Mars, and what does it mean? So this rover is really specifically designed as an astrobiology machine. So it's it's there to look for signs of life. And in order to do that, it has a whole lot of different instruments. It has many different cameras that will be very carefully examining the, the soil around it, the, the regolith, the sort of Martian uh, dirt. Um, it has uh, drills. It's going to drill into the soil. It's got a laser that will shoot, uh, shoot laser beams at rocks to vaporize a little bit of the edge of the rock to to study the the spectrum of that and learn about the chemistry of that. It has um, uh, onboard chemistry uh, experiments to understand the chemistry of the rocks, to understand the mineralogy, you know, how the the chemicals are put together. It's it's, uh, really built for, for this question of, is there life, was there life on Mars? And it'll even be capturing, uh, it'll be picking up some some samples of the Mars dirt to store, to leave for a, a mission to come back later and pick them up and take them back to Earth for astrobiologists here on Earth to, to examine. And then, yes, there is this uh, this little Mars helicopter that's going to go around and... and um, and that's really a proof of concept thing. But the idea is that it'll fly around and go to places that the rover can't access and, and take some pictures. So it's a, it's a really spectacular machine. Doctor, can I just note just th- that that you smile the whole time you talk about this stuff? Is that <laughs> do you smile all the time it's, or just it's, when- it's amazing? I, I mean, I. 
I'm just, I'm so thrilled about yeah. this, this project. I'm so thrilled about what we're learning. You know, the, the, what we can see when we go to Mars with machines like this is incredible. You know, we, it's, uh, Mars is an amazing place already. We know that it had uh, an atmosphere. We know it had liquid water in the past. And, and this rover is landed right in the, in a crater that we think used to be an ancient lake. And it's right on this sort of delta uh, where there's, there was material flowing into this lake. Um, and so there'll be sediments and, you know, who knows what's in there, right? Who knows what's buried under those sediments? It's, it's super, super uh, exciting. Yeah. So this is, uh, this, this is that they call, I guess they're calling it the Jezero crater, Jezero crater. Um, Jezero. Jezero. Yeah. So this was, I think one of the first, if not the first images that were uh, beamed back there. Can yes. you tell us what we're seeing there? And uh, Katie, you, you, you touched yeah. on some, some sort of like, did they intentionally land it there or was this like, hey, this could land anywhere yeah. on Mars? Oh, no, this this is another cool thing about this project. This was an incredibly intentional landing. So they chose the crater. They chose a part of the crater that they wanted to land in near this delta. And then they gave the rover the ability to steer on the way down. Wow. So the rover had these these uh, cameras looking down, taking pictures of the, the ground, comparing it to, uh, what, uh, to maps that it had on board, figuring out what the best place to land was, checking for hazards, you know. So it managed to land in a super flat, place there are you know little dunes and things around it little rocks and things but it landed in a place that's totally flat totally calm you know just dirt around and that picture that, that you um you put up a moment ago the first picture from the from the lander is uh just the the lander has a couple of little cameras that it uses for sort of orientation making sure there's nothing dangerous around you know in terms of rocks that it might run into and so these these are the this is the picture with uh that it first took just to to see where am i and that's the picture with the lens cap still on there's a sort of clear protective lens cap to uh you know to protect it from all the stirring up of the dirt when it lands the pictures we're gonna get when the lens caps come off and when the the super powerful cameras uh, are are first you know opened up. Those are going to be absolutely incredible. I mean, this 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 machine has much better cameras than the previous landers. Um, it's going to get stereo imagery, uh, video. It's going to be really awesome. So I'm like. <clears throat> I have, I have the more you tell us about this, the more questions I have. But I'm even thinking about something, <laughs> okay. something that would be. She goes, okay. Uh, she's, you're like, you know, I have other things to do today. Uh, but no, 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 it's I just, cool. I'm, I, mean, I'm, I love talking about this. Oh, and people are gonna, you're gonna be just, you're blowing people's minds live. And when the podcast is posted <laughs> later, we're just, we're gonna hear from all of Canada about this. Thrilled that you've joined us, Dr. Katie Mack, our guest. Uh, one of, it's easy to say, one of the the the, the foremost and most followed uh, voices of science on Twitter. What, what's it like? for you by the way you're closing on a 400,000 Twitter followers people like <laughs> I, like I, I honestly yeah. I was yesterday I was doing some reading up on you I was super excited you said you'd come join us on the show and it was like you know one piece that was writing I see that there's a piece about you um, you know in the UK the Guardian's writing about you know what it's like for you to be heckled by Stephen Hawking to be the Twitter sensation on heat <laughs> death people are talking about the two voices people care about most in science are you and Neil deGrasse Tyson I'm going wow but I mean you know this is the type of thing where I this gives you an opportunity, I think, to take like your life's work and your life's passion. And then people are paying attention mm -hmm. to a project like this. And then all of a sudden the whole world is starting to dream again about space exploration. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, be, being on Twitter is is helpful because it means I can actually talk really directly with people and find out what people are excited about and, you know, build on that excitement. And uh, I I love the interactivity, the, the back and forth you get on social media. Um, and I love that how many people really love science. You know, I think that there's there's a misconception that that science is dull or that, you know, it's all this kind of slog. And when you actually show people what it's about, what we do, what we get excited about, how much creativity there is in science, how much, uh, you know, just joy there is, I think that that helps people to, to see uh, what it's really about and and um, and why we do it and why this is you know one of the most amazing things humanity can do you know go out and explore the stars uh, just figure out how the universe works and what our place in it is so um, I love uh, being able to have that platform you, you know tone of voice is so important when you ask a question because I could say like what's the point of this and it would sound sarcastic and dismissive or i could say like what's the point of this like what are we hoping to learn from it like do we yeah do, does that because some people are going to be thinking this is great we can figure out if we can live there when we destroy planet earth and other people are going to go i wonder if i wonder if we can go get oil on mars and if we can let's go do it and and, and other people are going to have you know different theories about the the, the importance of this or maybe the, the potential mm-hmm. of it what do you think it is well, this particular mission really is about trying to find out if Mars ever had life. You know, so so it's it's equipped with uh, with a bunch of different instruments to to answer that one question. You know, when we when Mars did have liquid water on the surface when it had a thicker atmosphere, was there life there? And that's a big important question because it 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 comes to this this point of how how common is life in the universe you know we know that that we had the conditions for life here and we know that you you know here we we had liquid water we had sources of heat like hydrothermal vents we had an atmosphere um, and life arose here and everywhere we look here on earth if there is some bit of water there is life you know um life is amazingly tenacious you know we, we really do see it everywhere and so if we also see it on Mars, if if the conditions there similar to Earth also hold life, then that could suggest that life is really abundant in the universe, that that maybe all you really need are just a few organic molecules and some liquid water and, you know, uh, a source of energy. Maybe that really is all you need for life, and maybe it is just everywhere out there. So that's the big question this mission is is looking to answer. I I think, um, and I'm I don't know. I won't assume what your position is or not, but there has to be. I mean, there can we ignore? There has to be intelligent life all over the place. There's no way, as we wrap our minds around how big the universe is, that planet Earth is the only planet with intelligent life. Do we agree there? Um, I mean. I, I think that we definitely agree that there has to be life. I don't know how how common intelligence is to, to evolve, but I mean, look, you know, we've got 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. That's just our galaxy, right? And, and it's estimated that maybe about one in 10 of those stars has a planet orbiting it that has conditions sort of like Earth, you know, a solid surface, um, the possibility for liquid water. If that's the case, you know, there there are just so many planets out there that have conditions for life. And then the idea that we're the only place where that life formed or the, the only place where that life developed does seem like a big stretch. So I think it's very likely that there's other life out there. I, I, I think that probably there's some other intelligent life out there. I don't know how you define all this stuff, but um, 
you know, it would be very, very odd if, if we were truly alone. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I just, I don't know when my imagination starts going, which is what happens when you start talking about things like this. And when you're trying to start, yeah. you know, when you try to wrap a human mind or a human understanding around, you know, the cosmos, um, and, and especially mm-hmm. when we get to listen to somebody like you, uh, you know, you start and I'm imagining like Martians finding the rover and trying to figure <laughs> us out. Like I'm starting to go in all kinds of bizarre directions, but it's, you know, it's just exciting. Like imagine if we found their version of, of perseverance on earth, like we'd lose our minds, yeah. obviously. Right. That's area 51, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's pretty good evidence that there isn't complex life on Mars right now, or yeah. you know, um, at least. Uh, but but the but there is poss- the possibility that there is life. I mean, we talk about the possibility of past life back when Mars was more habitable. There could be life extant on Mars now. There could be microbes under the surface in the in the subsurface ice. You know, we know that there's a lot of subsurface water ice all over the planet. And that's a similar environment to some tundras on Earth, right? And then we know that there's life in those places. So, so there could be uh, life wandering around on Mars right now. Maybe it's little, maybe it's not that complex. And maybe there was more complex life in the past. We could find fossils. You know, there's, there's so much we haven't explored yet. Katie, I'm looking at your Twitter and I want to talk about your book in just a second. But first here, this is great. Okay. Uh, you, you quote uh, planetary protection officer Lisa Pratt uh, <laughs> on how they intend yes. and, and how they carry out doing no harm. You, you, you quite rightfully describe her as the person with the world's coolest job title. Um, I'm, I'm, yes. happy to, I'm happy to hear that. I think just even as a principle of exploration, um, that's the angle to take. I think that, that that's something that maybe a lot of people, including me, might not have initially thought of. Yeah, it's a really important thing that uh, when when NASA or ESA, you know, some space agency sends a mission to another world, there's a lot of care taken to make sure that we don't contaminate that spacecraft. Um, because if we if we get, you know, our little microbes of whatever kind on the spacecraft, the spacecraft lands, uh, those microbes could spread around that, that world. Um, it could affect any native life that's there. But also it would mean that when we go back and look for signs of life, we might accidentally just rediscover the life we took there. And uh, then we don't get any science out of it. So it's both a science thing and, you know, a sort of, I guess, moral thing that we don't want to contaminate other worlds with our, with stuff. Um, but uh, it is a really important thing. And, and they do take a lot of care to uh, sterilize these machines as much as possible. Uh, Katie, just uh, the end of the summer, I guess into the early fall, you released your book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. it's it's such a neat book because it gets into, I don't want to sort of try to sum it up, I'll let you do that, but basically sort of five options you think of how we're going to, well, meet our end, so to speak, <laughs> and people better wrap their minds around the heat death. Can you take us into this? <laughs> yeah, so the, the book is about five different possibilities for how the universe could end. So not the world, you know, we're, we're pretty sure we know how the world is going to end, which is that the sun is going to get a lot brighter. It's going to sort of boil off the oceans of the earth, and then eventually the earth might fall into the sun. It's a little bit unclear exactly what will happen at that point. But, you know, the end of the earth, that's you know, billions of years away, but um, but we know how that's going to go. But I'm interested in the end of the universe, right? So uh, how everything will end. And um, there are a few different ways that that could go. Uh, there's the heat death, which is 
the sort of default scenario where it's sometimes called the big freeze. The the universe just kind of keeps expanding and expanding and things get farther and farther apart and colder and darker and everything gets sort of more isolated. Uh, and then the universe just kind of fades away. And that's that's sort of how we think it's probably going to go, but there are other possibilities and some of them are much more exciting, <laughs> much more violent in some ways. And uh, so in the book, I, I go through all of those uh, options. What's, what's that like, that exercise of exploring these and putting some science behind it? And I mean, ultimately, does it, <clears throat> does it put you into a pretty meta state of mind, so to speak? Yeah, it's it's hard. Uh, it's hard not to be affected by spending a couple of years thinking about the ultimate destruction of all reality. <laughs> you know, it definitely does sort of affect your mind uh, mindset. Just a bit. Um, yeah. So it. it yeah, you get a different perspective on a lot of things. Um, I think that I find it uh, a little bit hopeful, really, you know, um, just that I know that it's true that we are we are not going to go on forever, um, but we've um, we've done amazing things with with the time we've had and um, and we're learning so much about the universe. And even if we are just unimportant specks in the cosmos, um, we are uh, we are really impressive for unimportant specks. You know, we do things like land robots on Mars and study the Big Bang and learn about the future evolution of the universe. So um, I think it's uh, I think it's, it's kind of inspiring sometimes. So how do you reconcile We'll, we'll, we'll get you to leave us with this. This will be the thought that, that we can walk with for the rest of our weekend. How do you reconcile the fact that we can land rovers on Mars and we've got the, the Hubble Space Telescope and we've got the International Space Station and all kinds of cool things? And obviously, this audience is, is, is uh, you know, going to be very proud. I think we're all very proud of the Canadarm and the role that that's played. The Canadians, mm. you know, we feel like we've played a role. Chris Hadfield, the commander and all these kinds of things. Um, and and we, we look at exploration. We get all uh, inspired and we talk about government's commitments to fund these types of things. We see private space ventures like SpaceX and others, and we wonder what the future looks like. And then on the flip side, we realize that ultimately there's probably nothing we can do about what's ultimately going to happen to this whole thing, which is complete and total collapse, regardless of the plans you've put in place. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think that it, it comes to this question of, of you know, meaning and purpose, right? I think that I think that it is possible to find meaning and purpose, even if in something that doesn't go on forever. Um, and the universe appears to be something that doesn't go on forever. But that doesn't mean that uh, that the things that we do are not important. That doesn't mean that um, we can't uh, just really uh, you know, be amazed and uh, joyous about what we can do and what we can learn. So, um, you know, it's a matter of perspective, I think. Yeah, well said. Uh, Dr. Katie Mack, uh, a theoretical cosmologist, a professor at North Carolina State University, of course, the author of The End of Everything. You can follow her along with, you know, coming up on a half a million other people on Twitter at Astro Katie. Thank you so much for this. This was so much fun, Katie. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Real talkers, we'd love to hear from you on on what your day was like yesterday. If you watched uh, Perseverance Land, uh, I know I was uh, actually on a Zoom call with uh, one of our business partners, Sam, and I realized I had scheduled it for for two o'clock Mountain. Hadn't crossed my mind. We did have the studio monitor on. Um, and I could tell he was having a very difficult time concentrating on the call because he's been talking about this for weeks. I mean, he's been following the story since the launch in the summer. And uh, I had him here glued to a Zoom call. 
in the final moments of the landing. I don't know if he's ever going to forgive jerk. me. <laughs> yeah, isn't that amazing? Well, it's like, sorry, is this spacecraft landing? Okay, I'm 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 amped up because you know I get amped up about science shows. So that's it, it's like I don't know. Uh, Dr. Mac's nerdiness is so infectious. Isn't it amazing? And, it's just, and it makes me so excited. Like I was, I was cruising through her Twitter yesterday and she had posted um, a photo of herself at the Very Large Array, which is a, a huge array of, of radio telescopes. And I've been to a big radio telescope to do a film project once before. And I was just like, oh man, that's one of the coolest places I've ever seen. So yeah, yeah she, uh, that, was, that was fun. She, uh, I mean, that I feel like that's the smartest person I've ever talked to in my life. I, I would agree that's with that. What, that's, <laughs> yeah. No offense to everybody else, but wow. Um, and, and no offense to real talkers, but I didn't even, I didn't even, I wasn't even watching the live chat through that. I was just, I was just glued to her and what she was saying. So I'm seeing it now for the first time. Chad says, I, I think the, the people in the chatterbox were also like basically just glued to her words as well. They were, that's the impression I'm getting. Everyone was just kind of locked and loaded. Yeah. Tuned in. Uh, Chad says, oh boy. If you're excited about Hubble, just wait until you hear about the James Webb Space Telescope. All right. Well, that's something to Google. Uh, I love this. Shalane says, my kids picked The Martian for family movie night tonight. That's so great. Shalane, we do family movie night on Fridays, too. Some random guy says, I love hearing Sam's laugh in the background of interviews. Um, I kind of use Sam is like is like the gauge. Sam, to a certain degree, is like an engagement thermostat in the room. Where if I see you like refilling your coffee or like, you know, kind of like in the very rare circumstance where you might twiddle your thumbs, uh, I would take that as a gauge of like the, the program needs a little shot of adrenaline. Whereas if you are gleef, I mean, that that shriek of yours, which I just adore um, that that to me is an indication that we've got some good content going on. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> and again, you know, it's like context is everything. You know, I love the science segments. So that yeah. was uh, that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah. This is a great question from Tracy. This would have been fun. I wish I would have seen this, Tracy. She says, "I wonder if somebody like Katie uh, reads science fiction or watches movies like The Martian." She says, and just scoffs and says, "No." I don't uh, know because I know yeah. a lot of scientists love science fiction. Oh, probably. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine like, you know, you talk about you're talking about cosmologists and astrophysicists and all these brilliant minds. Um, you know, I would imagine growing up probably shows like Star Trek and, you know, would would probably have been pretty huge. Oh, I think so. And I mean, like I Star know, Trek is I'm making generalizations here for yeah. sure. I don't know. Were yeah. you a Trekkie? I wasn't. A Trek. I think I'm a little too young for Trek. Like my mom was a huge Star Trek fan. I I've I appreciate it. I've seen some of the movies. Um, I actually went to the uh, the uh, Modern Art Museum in Seattle. Um, the name of which is escaping me right now, uh, has a huge Star Trek exhibit with some of the original sets and, huh. and, and whatnot there too. So it was, you know, there's like a, a massive collection. Of, I've toured some of that stuff too. But I also like, like, I remember hearing somebody once describe Star Trek as like an, an, an optimistic view of the future. And I'm just okay. like, that's so brilliant. It's just, yeah. it's this beautiful, it, it's this beautiful piece of storytelling, you know? I love that we just took a half hour long conversation with a cosmologist about Mars and we're talking about Star Trek within like 90 <laughs> seconds. Unbelievable. Interviews like these are made possible by our valued partners like the team at Kubi Energy. Kubi Energy is busy installing solar projects uh, across British Columbia and Alberta with their team of certified electrician and electricians apprentices. You're not going to get somebody up there on your roof 
wiring in a solar system for the first time with no idea what they're doing. Kubi does it right, uh, starting with all the paperwork. You don't have to worry about filling out the forms or applying for the rebates. It's all part of the service that they offer. Check them out today online. You can just link to them by the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Remember, if you have a good news story to tell, something that inspired you this week, a photo or a video that you absolutely love, send it to us at talk at ryanjesperson.com. Put Kubi positive reflections in the subject line and of course coming up on monday another edition of positive reflections we'll start our week off right Uh, sam can you load up that photo for me from the boiler room you know the exact one that i'm talking about we love audience testimonials and we got this email from kathy b this week she was in the midst of this deep freeze i'm talking todd's mechanical oh yeah you know what i'm talking about sam's looking at me like the boiler room photo what are you talking kathy sent this in this is great This is the stuff that resonates with us. She says, here is the knight in shining armor. As a matter of fact, she calls him the knight in shining plumber. She says, this is Todd of Todd's Mechanical. She says, we had a pipe burst this morning at work. And while water was spraying all over our boiler room, our usual commercial plumber gave us the runaround and said he couldn't help us until possibly, possibly 6 p.m. So I'm panicking about who to call. And then I remembered about hearing Todd's Mechanical advertised on Real Talk. And I checked out RyanJesperson.com on the sponsors page and I called him and I asked if he could help me and he was here in half an hour. He fixed our problem plus some in an amazingly short period of time. I told him advertising on Real Talk worked. He was amazing. Nobody's ever walked into our boiler room with the confidence he displayed. So quick, really knowledgeable, a 10 out of 10. That from Kathy B., who's celebrating Todd's mechanical. And and if Todd's listening right now, he's going to go, Jespo, you're going to like say my phone number or what, man? You're going to tell people where to find me? You can be like Kathy, go to ryanjesperson.com and just look on the sponsors page. Or of course, you can just call Todd directly at 780-499-7598. Let's take a look at the news. Well, here's a story that we're following. Canada uh, strongly condemning Facebook's decision uh, to block news sharing in australia have you seen this this is a wild story it was part of an escalating standoff we talked about this a few weeks ago over rules that are requiring social media platforms to compensate news publishers so yesterday uh yesterday afternoon uh, the honorable stephen gilbo canada's heritage minister said that facebook's actions are imperiling public safety uh saying that you know the news ban for example shut down Facebook pages run by government agencies, including a suicide prevention service, a fire and rescue organization, uh, said the minister, I must condemn what Facebook is doing. It's highly irresponsible and compromises the safety of many Australians. We'll continue to follow this story as it develops over the next number of days. Let's roll that video from the airport. How about this? American Senator Ted Cruz out of Texas. I love how they wrote. I want to write. I want to credit CNN on this flew into a storm of criticism on Thursday. Well said. Here he is with a police escort coming back with his tail between his legs from Cancun. He said he went there to drop off his daughters. Uh, He's since, of course, told the truth because what a bullshit explanation that nobody would believe. He leaves his home state. It's not funny at all. It's brutal. Leaves his home state of Texas as hundreds of thousands of people are without power. There are people that have died as a result of these winter storms in Texas. He's on his way to Mexico, says the Republican senator. It was obviously a mistake. In hindsight, I wouldn't have done it. American Bridge this morning reporting uh, text messages they got from 
Senator Cruz's wife, Heidi, asking their neighbors if they wanted to accompany the family. Quote, anyone can or want to leave for the week? Rooms at the Ritz cost three oh nine plus tax. <laughs> oh, boy. Not a good look for the American senator out of Texas. And finally, uh, this is kind of fun for me. I've asked Sam to prepare a photo to show you as part of our newscast, but Sam doesn't know what it's a photo of. That's correct. <clears throat> you you sent it to me and I said, what is this? And you're like, you'll find out. This is my gift to you. What's your guess of what this is, Sam? The file was named Egypt. So yeah. I'm guessing it's, it's, uh, it, it's some sort of like kind of looks like ancient wine bottles maybe or something Ooh, like that. Ooh, Sam, very good. Uh, yourself as a craft beer aficionado, I'm happy to tell you that, that researchers believe they have uncovered the world's oldest brewery. Wow. Yeah, okay, so that's check cool. this out. Take a look at the photo again. This is reported by Sky News. Archaeologists unearthed uh, this at Abydos, uh, an ancient burial ground in Egypt. They, they say that they believe uh, that these eight large units, about 20 meters uh, deep, two and a half meters across, they say uh, include two rows of these 40 pots as well. They believe that it was used to heat the mix of grain and water to make beer. They said that the ancient brewery, based on capacity, what they've measured current day, Dr. Matthew Adams, part of this American-Egyptian uh, collaborative scientific effort, say they could have made 22 and a half thousand liters of beer at a time. That's a serious capacity. That's a great party. Wow. 22 and a half thousand liters at a time. Uh, the brewery believed to date back to the time of King Narmer, who's credited for unifying Egypt at the start of the first dynastic period right around 3000 BC. Uh, pretty incredible Way stuff there cool. out of Egypt. Wouldn't you love to taste that beer and just see how different it was or maybe how similar it might be? Yeah, because like beer brewing is an ancient, ancient tradition. And I and I like I wonder how much the recipes evolved over time. My guess is that my guess is that it would it would it would taste dramatically different. I think so. I think so. But it'd be cool. I would love to give it a yeah. try. Well, I think that like their 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 ingredients that they had access to are completely different from what we use now, and their processes are probably different. And then like yeah, it would be it would be fascinating to taste it. Are our uh, panelists ready to rock and roll on this Friday morning? I betcha. Every Friday, uh, right around this time, if you're watching us live, we appreciate it on YouTube. Uh, you know that around 11 o'clock Eastern, 9 o'clock Mountain, we bring you our Real Talk Roundtable. And today we honor and celebrate Black History Month. And it's a real pleasure to welcome uh, a trio of voices that I think are going to inspire us all. I'll introduce them uh, as as you see them across our screen here. That's Semhard Tekest, uh, right next to me, a conservative strategist. Uh, who spent the better part of a decade working on Parliament Hill as a senior advisor uh, to multiple Harper-era cabinet ministers. She's currently a senior public affairs advisor at Enterprise, a national strategic communications firm, uh, making her Real Talk debut this morning. Semhar, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I'm very excited to have Eric Domont joining us. Uh, he's an analyst, a photographer, uh, and an Edmontonian by way of Montreal and Winnipeg. So this guy has seen the country. Uh, really thrilled, Eric, to have you here on the program. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. You bet. And Andrew Parker uh, joining us as well. My man, uh, a former pro basketballer, a community activist. Uh, I want to talk about the role that he played in the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstration, a speech I heard him deliver this summer in Edmonton, Alberta, on the grounds of the Alberta legislature that moved me for weeks after the fact. He's the founder of the Black Teachers Association. They call him AGP. Welcome to the show. And thanks for making time for us this morning, Andrew. 
thanks so much to you and shout out to the panelists and of course shout out to the culture during Black History Month we love every one of y'all appreciate that I want to encourage uh, the three of you to interact with one another as I have told you in the email correspondence you don't have to wait for me to ask you a question we want this to be like uh, four friends that, that are out for coffee together I want to start with, 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 with a general question so we can set the scene here and establish some context uh, Samhart Black History Month what does it mean to you uh, to me, it's an opportunity to really take time to reflect, acknowledge, and appreciate the contributions of Black Canadians. I'm an African immigrant to Canada, so my experience might be a little different than fellow um, Black people who would have come from the Caribbean, others who would have come to Canada through the slave trade. So it's an opportunity for me to get a sense of sort of the breadth of the Black community here in Canada and the contributions that have been made by those who came before me and sort of laid the groundwork and paved the way for African immigrants like myself to be able to come to Canada um, and, you know, in some and, and thrive in a lot of ways in in this in this great country. Samhar, how old were you when you came to Canada? Where did you move here from? Uh, I was five. I moved here um, in in 1990, not to age myself, but in 1990 from Eritrea mm. in East Africa. So my experience is that of a you know a, a young refugee who would have who would have come to this country quite young without an understanding of what the the history of the Black community uh, was at the time. And, and you know, with age, you 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 get to learn and appreciate it. But I'll say I did not have an understanding for how how varied and different the different black communities in Canada are until I moved to Toronto just two years ago, uh, which was really eye-opening. I grew up in Ottawa where the majority of black people um, in Ottawa would have immigrated to Canada in the 90s. And most of us had a very similar sort of story, um, but you move to Toronto and you, you, you learn about the history of black people in this country and in Ontario, which was very, very eye-opening for me. I want to follow back on that because that's a fascinating angle. Uh, Eric, uh, to you, what does Black History Month mean? You know, for me, Black History Month is interesting because I'm biracial. So my experience, I love that. I love that you talked about the experience and the fact that there are different experiences somehow because it's true. There really are different experiences. And there's another, and then there's the, there's the idea that the biracial experience is one that's not often explored because in that experience, you have two cultures um, that in my case, I'm German and I'm Haitian. And I grew up predominantly in a white environment. So I would say that in my experience, it was more an, an assimilative experience. So for me, Black History Month is sort of a time to explore that side of myself that I maybe um, was not as exposed to in my upbringing uh, and, and learn more about my own personal, like my ancestry and my, and my history. But it's interesting because you're also doing it um, with this other perspective uh, that makes it interesting because you as a biracial person, I, I should say, I shouldn't say that I speak for all biracial people, of course, but in my experience, um, there is uh, a sort of qualifying my blackness because I have lighter skin and I have an association with, you know, uh, a lot of the, the, the German side of my family and the white side of my family. And that affords me privileges that folks who grew up in, you know, uh, cultures where uh, they didn't have maybe that access and the access to the, the privileges, um, I, you know, it absents me from some of the struggles that they have. And so it's a really, um, 
it's a really soul searching time sometimes for me. Uh, when I learn these things, there's a bit of almost like sometimes there's a bit of imposter syndrome, which I think might be surprising for some people to understand where you're like, am I black enough? You know, that's a question that comes to my mind oftentimes when I'm surrounded, you know, um, by other folks uh, from that community. And so it's just a time to do, you know, exploring and, and learn more about myself and appreciate more about that side of my ancestry. That's a that is a fascinating perspective. Um, I, I want I want to get to Andrew in a second. But Eric, I, I have to circle back on that, that imposter syndrome, you know, that question, am I black enough? Uh, I, I would imagine I want to ask you how you reconcile that. But I would imagine it sounds to me like that's probably a lifelong journey. Yeah, it really is. Um, but it, it's interesting because, you know, events in the recent past have, you know, made it a lot easier, I think, to um, explore that side of it. Um, you know, you've got things in like major media where you have like the the Black Panther phenomenon, which celebrated black culture. And I think for I, I would I would imagine that for some people it was like a validation to celebrate our blackness. But we, we you know, it was hard for us to find that on the screen you know, to find something that celebrated the beauty and, and the, the, the colorfulness of, of blackness, because we don't see ourselves represented. You know, we don't see our stories as represented. And if we do see our stories, they're often about the struggles that we faced or our ancestors faced, um, as opposed to celebrating us. Right. And those are two very, and they're both very important subjects to talk about and to, to see, but the celebration is so important to, to validate, you know, being happy about that part of you and exploring it and learning more about it because it gets you excited. It gets you engaged. It gets you wanting to find more of those stories. Yeah. Well said, Andrew, what does black history month mean to you? Uh, before we even get started, uh, Samhar Kamalahi and I oh. apologize if I haven't said it properly and Eric Guntag, my friend, Vigates there. And of course, Sapase Mabule. And I wanted to shout out and acknowledge all of your cultures because um, one of my things I do in my classes as a teacher is try to learn the languages of my students, wherever they come from. And um, we always make that a two-day assignment. So I wanted to acknowledge both of your guys' cultures. So shout out to both of you. Um, to, get you. Your question, <laughs> to get to your question, Ryan, um, Black History Month means accountability for me. Um, yesterday night, I had a conversation with some students from Strathcona High School, um, and recently uh, they had a very challenging time. Um, they had started a Black Students Association, and unfortunately, there was a, a white supremacist um, counter reaction uh, Instagram profile that was created to kind of, I don't know, dismiss uh, their 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 desire to have Black history within their school. Um, so rather than speaking about what it means to me, I want to speak about what it means to this, these youth. Um, last night, they actually quadrupled their numbers for their BSA because of the experience. And the people that were inside of that meeting, it wasn't just black students. It was white students. It was Muslim students. It was Arab students. It was Asian students. It was a collective of students who wanted to learn more about the culture. And I asked them point blank, like when you guys got started with your BSA and Black History Month stuff, what did you want? Well, number one thing they said is they wanted awareness. They wanted to change the community. They wanted to address black history and they wanted to shed light on African perspectives. Now, one of the frustrating elements, and this is why I'm talking about account accountability is when you have like supremacist groups try to offset these young children's desire to learn about themselves. 
Um, some students said that they're frustrated, they're angry, they're exhausted. And I could speak for myself as one of the co-founders of Black Teacher Association. We feel the exact same things. Um, they experience pushback in some regards. They're embarrassed for their school. But they also found a way to change that challenge and turn it into an opportunity. Uh, a number of the students mentioned that they were going to use this as a tipping point, um, that they were going to hold the students who were in charge of that uh white supremacist um, account accountable. Uh, they wanted their admin to support them. They wanted to have like other groups get involved. We had a member from the Gay Straight Alliance who actually hopped into that meeting too and discussed some of the challenges that they had. So in terms of Black History Month, for me, I think it's about the youth because, I mean, I'm 37 years old. You know, I'll, I'll be lucky if I get to 50 or 60. I want to see what the next generation needs and I want to support them in any way. So shout out to those youth at Skona High School, the BSA. I think you're doing incredible work. I'm hoping that uh, the administrators will support them in any way. And I'm hoping that, you know, the higher ups in education in our city support these kids because they're right at the cusp of change. And um, I think as adults, not just black adults, but all adults, we should support them. Andrew, I like I said, I, I saw you speak to about 15,000 people gathered at the Alberta legislature uh, back this summer. And I'm going to say you say you, you'd be lucky to make it to 50. You better make it to 90, my man, because I know you've got a lot of work left ahead of you. I saw how you uh, rallied people and brought people together. And that was remarkable. What was that like for you? I, I don't have we don't have it, uh, you know, time to sort of roll the speech now. People can find it online. Um, I've seen a lot of people call it I have a dream 2020 um, that, that was a, that was a powerful moment. Our five year old little boy was there uh, listening to you every single word. You know, I I love the city of Edmonton. Um, my parents immigrated to Canada in the 1970s via Montreal. So I know there's some of our panelists, you, you know, that Montreal experience and, you know, we couldn't get jobs. So we had to come out west. We came to Alberta and I grew up as obviously a black Canadian, but I still have my ties to my roots to Jamaica and Grenada. So we were in heavily involved in the Jamaica Association, heavily involved in the National Black Coalition of Canada. And my parents always ensured that, you know, we knew who we were and we knew what we were supposed to do within our culture. That speech right there is something that I, I don't even remember giving because I kind of felt like it was an out-of-body experience. Yeah. And when the crowd started roaring and I was looking, I'm seeing there's, there's white people, there's black people. I saw my First Nations brothers out there. And immediately after that speech, a, a seven-year-old woman came up to me and she said, I'd lived in this country for 70 years and I'm sick and tired of, of racism. And yeah, I started crying, man. I started crying right in front of her. I didn't even know who this woman was. And we hugged and you know, it was one of those experiences where I knew that what I was saying would hopefully reverberate, um, but not just as some type of, oh, it's me saying it. It's because it needed to be said. And uh, I'm thankful that our city did acknowledge it because a lot of cities did not. But I think our city is making some very positive strides. And I'm just thankful that I was able to actually be a small part in that process. Yeah, well, I want I want to let people know, and, and I'm happy to shout out other journalism outlets. That's one of the most freeing and wonderful parts of doing this independently is we can show you content from all different outlets. Um, Sam, I've got it up on my screen right now. Uh, shout out to the CBC that that featured, Andrew, your speech, and people can just go onto YouTube and check out I Have a Dream 2020. Teacher reads his speech from the Edmonton Anti-Racism Rally. I encourage people to do it. It's just a remarkable uh, a remarkable bit of dialogue. Semhar, it's been an interesting year. I mean, we referenced the Black Lives Matter uh, rallies. We saw, obviously, I mean, uh, horrifically troubling stories. George Floyd was killed. Breonna Taylor was killed. It seems to have um, resonated with with the general population in a way that I mean, I mean, to suggest that those were the only two um, individuals and black individuals that have died at the hands of police would be a gross understatement. 
But for some reason, um, those two stories brought millions of people together, um, like Andrew described, from different ethnic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. 2020 was was a year that that, that changed the dialogue uh, a little bit and, and, and admittedly increased the temperatures a little bit as well. How did you process that? Um, well, I think there's there are a lot of layers to how a black person living in a Western country would process something like that. Um, there, there's, there's a, to call it disappointment would be a gross understatement. It was very triggering is how I would say it. And, and I think what I, what I did, you know, in the mid, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm, you know, a woman living by myself in a one bedroom condo in Toronto. And so the isolation in and of itself had already created an, a mental health environment that was quite difficult for me. And I'm sure a lot of other people uh, like me. And then when you're looking at your television screen or your Twitter feed or any other type of social media, you're sort of bombarded with these horrific images of people who look like you being attacked because they look like you. That was the only reason this was happening to some people my age, some people younger than me. And so it was incredibly difficult and triggering and I think important for me to prioritize my mental health throughout that. On the other hand, there were times when it was heartening because I think for the first time, there was an acknowledgement in Canada that we're not immune to what happens in the United States. We have this sort of arrogant air about us where we think that we're better than Americans. And so that this type of thing doesn't happen in Canada. And I also saw a number of non-Black people, as Andrew said, non-Black people engaged in the conversation, acting as allies, which for me actually took the conversation to another level. The reality is, look, Black people aren't the ones who are being racist towards Black people. So it's not, what we need isn't an acknowledgement from the Black community that we're being attacked, abused, and uh, discriminated against. What we need is from non-Black Canadians and non-Black people to acknowledge that they are complicit in what's happening, um, you know, knowingly and sometimes unknowingly. The acknowledgement that unconscious bias is real and that it happens in every facet of our society and the desire to bring about change. And that's what I think was most heartening for me. It was the sort of a step back from this constant sort of defensiveness of the non-Black communities in this country and a desire to seriously look at the problems and bring about solutions. So in that sense, it was heartening. I was caught, I've been cautiously optimistic because, you know, we have seen um, deaths like this and media attention on them in the United States sort of trigger a conversation here in Canada. But look, I am heartened by the number of organizations that have cropped up. I'm heartened by the number of non-Black Canadians who are eager to contribute and play a role. I'm involved with a number of organizations like the Government Relations Institute of Canada that is actively looking at how we can increase Black representation in our sector. There are Black people along with other non-Black Canadians coming together and putting organizations together like the Black Talent Initiative so we can we can find space for talented, competent Black people who just haven't been given, given a chance. I think 
the policymaking changes when black people are at the table and for black people to be at the table, they need to be allowed to be there, to be encouraged to be there. And they need to see themselves in these organizations. So I'm heartened by uh, what's been happening since the summertime. And I'm heartened by the number of black and non-black people coming together to sort of, um, to sort of open doors, um, open doors and bring a seat at the boardroom table for black people to be a part of the the conversation and policymaking. Andrew, let me ask you about that along those same lines, representation and, 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 and Sam Hart talks about the boardroom table and there are other contexts, obviously what led you to found the black teachers association? What, what was the sort of the driving force there? Well, I mean, if we look at COVID-19, um, for the longest time, people were looking for solutions. And one of the solutions that was provided was the vaccine. But now I'm looking at racism and I'm asking myself, well, what's the vaccine for racism? And I think that personally within my profession, the vaccine is education and policy change. The number one pillar in the Black Teachers Association when Sarah Adam Akwanta and myself uh, started this in June was representation. Can we have more black faces at the front of the room can we have more black faces inside of our text textbooks? And when when I say black faces, I mean black history, black stories, black heroes, black inventions, um, contributions. Can we no longer be the footnotes? Like I was teaching a text for a while where Halle Selassie was was a footnote in a 400 page textbook when he's known in our culture as one of the greatest kings of all time. Um, he's actually heralded in Jamaica where my, my family's from is, you know, birthing Rastafari culture. Um, in addition to representation, like communication, inclusion, racism, awareness, providing supports and networking and bridges to post-secondary institutions. We wanted to make a concerted effort to address the inequities in education. And then the hardest part about that is we did it as teachers. You know, teachers right now are working so hard um, during COVID-19, you're, you're, you're in the classroom, then you're outside of the classroom. Uh, some teachers are making moves such as myself to go down to the center of education or, you know, other job opportunities. And the whole entire time, if you're a black educator, you're thinking, you know, are things going to change? You know, are my kids going to get the opportunities that I didn't? You know, I spent an entire um, educational experience from the time I was five years old to the time I was 18 without having one black teacher. I had one black administrator, so shout out to Rosalind Smith. She was the first and only black administrator that I've ever had as a teacher and as a student. We are making a huge push right now to reach our children, to have teachers and allies reach out to them too and say, hey, get into education. It's a wonderful profession. And also we want systemic change. The only cure for systemic racism is systemic change. So, you know, the BTA, we started with two members. We're actually now at about 75 plus a, at least at least 100 allies that are willing to do this work. And we're going to continue to push and advocate for change in education. And I guess the one thing we're asking for is higher ups, you know, work with us. You know, we're, we're all really nice people. We just have, you know, the word black in our association name but we're all really nice people and we definitely want to see some change in education hmm. you know andrew you talk about representation and especially when we're talking about the stories uh and you know when i think of the curriculum in particular and i am going to date myself now because i haven't been in the uh 
scholastic environment. Uh, you know, I've been out of it for a few years now. I'm just going to say a few years. And, you know, the scholastic experience is one that's very interesting and it's somewhat unique, right? Because you only experience it when you yourself are in it as a child. And then if you have children, you experience it through them. But then other than that, you don't ever experience it and you don't know what the changes are and what changes have happened. But in my experience, when I was in it, I think back because I loved history. I loved learning about history. And one of the things that I noticed is that in the curriculum that I was taught in Quebec, in Montreal, uh, there was obviously a very big focus on the history of Canada and the history of Quebec and Canada. Um, and this is very Eurocentric and very Canadian centric. Right. And I, you know, now I go back and I think about it and I, I sort of ask myself, why is it that we, with the exception of world wars one and two, why is it that we focus only on the things that happens within like Canada, Canadians do within Canadian borders? Why is it that we don't talk about what Canada does everywhere else? I'm Haitian. We had a Haitian governor general who was the first black governor general that the country had. And Haiti is our largest aid commitment as a country. There is a ton. There's a large Haitian community in Quebec, in Montreal. Why is that not part of the story? Because we have done things. We have boots on the ground there. You, you, and then on the African continent, we have a presence there. We were on the ground in Rwanda when the genocide happened. Why don't we learn about Canada's contribution to that? Was it positive? Was it negative? Did we try to do something? Mulroney with his you know, stance on sanctions against the apartheid South African state and the sort of standing up to Thatcher and Reagan at the time. These are all things where Canada played a role, good or ill. You know, that's a different conversation, the, the, the value judgment, I would say. But why don't we learn about what we're doing outside of our borders? Why are we so focused about what we're doing inside of our borders? Because, you know, we have people who come here from those countries where we have boots on the ground and they become Canadians. And now they have, there's a history, you know, back at home, but there's also the history now in their new home. And how has that new home contributed to them having to come here, them being able to come here, their life once they are here. Like those are the stories that I would love to see more in the curriculum. That's so well said. And I want to, I want to ask the three of you in just a moment about, uh, about individuals that, that throughout history made an impact on you or, or individuals. I mean, people are talking about, for example, in Western Canada, uh, in our live chat right now, they're talking about John Ware and, and people are talking about sort of black Canadians through history that have made an impact on them or whose stories have resonated with them. Um, Samhar, if your mind works like mine, as soon as Eric starts talking about Mulroney and Thatcher and, and, I, and I start going, Oh, interesting. Ronald Reagan, I'm going, Okay, we're going to talk some politics here. Interesting. Um, I will say some of our viewers have, have some questions for you, Semhar, as a conservative strategist right. with race issues. I'm sure that you've seen that one coming from a mile away. Um, we'll get to those in just a moment. Want to remind you, of course, that Real Talk is very proud to partner with a team of builders that have joined us on our journey to make sure that each and every weekday morning we can bring you conversations, amazing ones like this. And that includes the team at Friesen Brothers. Mark your calendar, March 5th. They're opening up their 15th Alberta location in South Edmonton just off the Henday at Rabbit Hill Road. It will transform the grocery game in the Metro Edmonton region again. March 5th is where you'll be able to check out the Friesen Brothers location, the Rabbit Hill location, and of course uh, Friesen Brothers for more than 60 years has been Alberta grown and Alberta owned 
We're really proud to partner with the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. One of you wrote into us yesterday, uh, two days ago, and said, you, you keep saying that, but which ones are we talking about? All right. Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. That's where you'll find Mark and Mike's stores. Make sure you tell them when you show up that you're a real talker. They love to know that the Real Talk audience is making the trip out to check out their drive through Of course, you can find them on the delivery apps, too. And also a shout out to the team at Westworld Computers. They're powering a whole big part of our studio with the iMac and the iPad and the iPhone and the MacBook Pro and everything else that we use here. There we are on camera four. Sam gets to show off his Good shiny iMac. Four. Good oh, old camera beautiful. four. Uh, you, you know, You've been uh, you've been plugging the uh, the refurbished stuff lately. My personal setup at home is one of the gently used Apple products. Oh, is that right? Yes. What did you go with? Uh, I I also have the 27 inch iMac like this on my on my editing station right. at home. And so they reload was, the software. They give you yeah. the warranty again. And I was able to get you know way more horsepower than a new one because it was gently used. Yeah. It was great. Good stuff. There you have it. If you don't believe me, believe Sam G. Brooks, the technical producer of Real Talk. Uh, so our thanks to our partners, and you'll be hearing from more of them later on the show, including Trash Talk, which is coming up before we sign off today. Our uh, panelists this morning, as we celebrate and observe Black History Month, conservative strategist uh, Sam Hart to cast the founder of the Black Teachers Association, Andrew Parker, and photographer, creative and analyst Eric Domont. Um, let's talk politics. Uh, Sam Hart, I want to talk about representation in politics. We do have some pretty pointed questions from some uh, viewers. Viewers and listeners that are tuned in this morning say, how does Semhar uh, reconcile being a conservative strategist with, with, with some of the race-related issues that we see in conservative politics in Canada and the United States these days? How would you answer that? Well, first of all, I, I really get um, upset when people conflate the Canadian Conservative Party with the Republican Party, um, both sort of on the same spectrum of the political, uh, you know, on the political um like barometer or line where, you know, right-wing parties, yes. But in a lot of ways, the I'd say the conservative party is sometimes uh, closer to the Democrat Democratic Party uh, in, in the United States. That being said, both parties are coalitions, right? So there are uh, conservatives in, in Canada that sort of are on the spectrum of the right. So closer to the center, maybe further to the right and so on. How do I reconcile it? I have no issues reconciling it. And the idea that uh, the Conservative Party uh, is, is racist in any way, I, I would say is false. There, there is an issue with representation in the Conservative Party, a variety of representation, absolutely. And it's, it's incumbent on all parties, um, including the Conservative Party, to reach out to diverse communities in Canada and ensure that there is an interest from those communities in its parties so that the makeup of the party can be representative of the makeup of Canada. But like, I'll just say this, it is not the leader of the conservative party that has a history of dressing in blackface. Hmm. So I think there is a lot of leniency on the liberal party because they're quite good at the symbolism. And, and I have an issue with that because it's important to look beyond the headlines and really look at um, what the Liberal Party is contributing in action to Black communities versus what they are saying and what they're doing symbolically. That being said, I'm not absolving the Conservative Party or any other party in this country. There is a lack of representation in politics, but I'll give myself as an example. I got into politics sort of by accident, and I was always interested, my parents are politically active, but politically active in Eritrean politics, and so that was always a topic that was discussed 
in our household and I had an interest in it. I'd never seen anyone who looked like me on television when it came to politics in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, from any party. And so I didn't think that was a role for me. Sort of dropped into uh, politics after working on political campaigns, uh, aligned with the Conservative Party from a policy perspective, an individual responsibility perspective. The idea that Black people are not looking for handouts, just like any other Canadian, they're looking for opportunities to be at the table. I was given that opportunity with the party I aligned with and took it. So to answer that question, which is very, I think, loaded and broad, um, I don't have any issues reconciling my personal values with the values of the Conservative Party. Can the Conservative Party do better on, on the representation front? Absolutely. Can other parties do it? Yes. And what my goal is to contribute where I can to help other Black people who align with the Conservative Party or other parties get involved in politics. And I was involved with an organization, I was on the board of Operation Black Vote Canada, who does exactly this work. It's demystifying politics for the black community, helping them get involved at all levels, all um, levels of government, but also in every way, whether it's you know becoming a staffer, volunteering on campaigns, um, uh, running for nomination or running for election, demystifying the government relations world to them. And I think that's the important work that we need to focus on through all parties. I, uh, first of all, couldn't agree with you more that I think representation is the challenge that, uh, and, and to me is the onus that's upon all the political parties across Canada. I think it's great to see uh, the Green Party. I'm curious to see what direction enemy politics the Green Party. Um, I've requested an interview with her. I'm hoping to speak with her early next week. I really want to pick her brain, um, but but uh, she's being described by many as a leader that has the potential to, to sort of change the perception of the Greens and maybe start to encroach on the NDP a little bit. Um, Samar, I'd love your take on that. And I also want to ask you, your point about the prime minister is extremely fair. Um, do you believe that Justin Trudeau has properly and meaningfully addressed? I mean, that that scandal kind of flared up through the campaign, as you might expect. And then from the odd pot shot that I see people take on Twitter, it's not really part of public dialogue anymore. I can understand the one side of the argument that says, hey, we've all done really stupid things. And and fair enough, that includes me, too. But but also at the same time, um, he's the prime minister of Canada. And, and that's pretty huge. I mean, I can't imagine Joe Biden painted up in blackface and the American people saying, yeah, that guy's fit for office. Well, I'll take it a little bit further. Um, imagine Stephen Harper doing it. What would have been the public response? And I'm not absolving if Stephen Harper had done it, which he has not, as far as I, anybody knows, um, the the response would have been swift and it would have been vicious and he would not have been forgiven. I don't think Justin Trudeau should have been so easily forgiven. Th- that is that is my issue with that. Is that you know you the the response and I talked about this quite a bit a couple of years ago when it became an issue. It's it didn't happen once. It didn't happen twice. As far as we know, it happened at least three times. And why is it that we took his apology, which frankly was pretty half-assed as far as I'm concerned, and accepted it as as sort of a done deal. And I don't think I don't think that we. Um, I think we should demand more of our prime minister, and we should demand more of all of our politicians. Eric, uh, through this, I mean, obviously we're talking about Black History Month, and this I want to. I mean, how can I not have three, you know, educated and articulate people here and talk about issues that are current? But I also want to focus on 
history. And you've talked about your own uh, learning exercise and a lot of this being self-directed and prompted by some some of the, you know, the, the internal feelings that you've experienced. I've got uh, one of our viewers by the name of Tracy says that she's homeschooling her kids right now, which which obviously a ton of people are this year through this pandemic. And she says that she's been trying to, you know, make meaningful progress on on teaching black history to her kids. But she says that she's having a tough time finding in, in particular on the prairies uh, stories that are being told about Canada and and in particular Western Canada's black history uh, as yourself as, a, as an adolescent into a young man now as a grown man um, what stories have really resonated with you and, and how did you direct that exercise where did you uncover these stories I mean I am a student of like sort of the the macro scale of history right so a lot of the stuff that I have sort of I've read or at least up until the 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 recent portion of my life um, has been about, you know, the, the larger, the, the well-known names, right? So there you're talking about a lot of American history actually, right? So the work done by the civil, all the folks in the civil rights movement. Um, And, and so that's sort of, that was the starting point that I had because that's what was easily accessible. Um, It was available. You could find it. Uh, And then, you know, as I decided to say, well, actually I'm Canadian, I need the Canadian lens because I can't just keep learning about American black history because even though it does affect us here, what happens down South affects us here. um, I need to know what my country did and you know, what was its role in uh, bringing black folk here, treating them, uh, and so exploring that was actually a little bit harder because you have to do a little bit more digger deeping because it's not it's not actually on the surface like the American stories are. Um, and not to answer your question with a question, uh, or not that I mean to, but this is just sort of something that I do, but it's like, why? Why is it so hard to find those stories? Why, who decides, who makes those editorial decisions that says, you know what? Canadians are not going to appreciate this because they won't relate to it, right? Who defines the traditional Canadian experience? Who is the traditional Canadian? Because I'm here to tell you right now, even though my experience does um, sort of challenge that, growing up in Montreal, very diverse community, the discrimination that I experienced there was actually linguistic, not race. Um, And I was an Anglo in Quebec. So that is like another layer on top of that, that you would experience growing up there. Um, But then I moved to the prairies and I've spent more time on the prairies than I did growing up in Quebec now. And in the prairies, it's a much more homogenized community. And so I did not see myself as much the diversity, the amount of diversity, you know, relative to someplace like Montreal went down. And so I, it, you know, it became a struggle now to even be around those things that would inspire you to look into it. If you don't see yourself in your surroundings, in your environment, you don't think to investigate about yourself. You typically are presented with the history of the place that you're in. Um, and even that history is controlled. It's editorialized, right? It's curated uh, to fit the, the, the appetite of the, the people who are in that, in that place. Um, so I had to do some digging and I had to do some research and I had to say, okay, well, what do, what do I need to read about? Do I need to read about, you know, Oh, Viola Desmond, she's going on the dollar bill. I need to read about her. Okay. Uh, not, sorry, not the dollar bill, but like, you know, the yeah, $10 um, bill. Yeah. Yeah. The $10 bill. We haven't had a dollar bill. I'm that old. I remember the dollar <laughs> bill. Um, you know, and so 
that was like, oh, I should read about her and her experience. I should read about, you know, the Nova Scotian experience. Um, I should read about, um, I'm, I'm just trying to think right now. Well, I mean, a um, lot of people are talking about Alberta's, I mean, the community of Amber Valley, which I've had a chance to, to learn a little bit about over the years. I mean, there's a remarkable story of a community right, right there in Alberta. Yeah. And I haven't, like I have I've spent, I've been in Alberta for a while now, but again, I haven't explored this because I sort of, I take a step back and I typically look at like the Canadian level. Uh, the local level is definitely where I'm weakest as, as you go closer and closer in, that's where I start to get weaker and weaker. So I'm not as well versed on say the Albertan black experience as I would be, uh, on like the Quebec black experience or the overall Canadian black experience. Well, I does Sorry, Eric, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I just wanted to say, I, th- I think it I think it would provide some value to our audience to know that the reason that you're here this morning uh, is because you and I were corresponding behind the scenes and you, you were throwing a whole bunch of really neat conceptual ideas of of how real talk could could conduct meaningful uh, feature discussions for Black History Month. And the more that you talked about the angles you wanted to cover, the more that we realized that you were the voice that we needed to hear. That's a thank you for that also that is like uh that's a significant amount of uh responsibility and pressure that i take really seriously um mostly because of again that biracial experience where i feel like i'm like am i the right person can i um but i don't know maybe it affords me with a different perspective that allows me to question it a little bit more but yeah who are the community leaders right why are their voices not being uplifted as much why does it take a huge event like black lives matter to you know bring someone like andrew to the fore for the greater population, I would say, as opposed to the community that he, you know, is is intimate with. And, you know, there's a, I think a part of that is also maybe that those communities in, in these more homogenized, larger communities tend to be very tight knit. Right. They tend to be very close. They tend to work together with one another. But then also their stories uh, again, with the curation, I wonder if people make the decision that the things that these folks are doing, you know what, people aren't going to relate to them. And I'm like, whose responsibility is it? Is it the per- is it the subject of the story responsible for making themselves relatable, or is it the storyteller, the journalist, uh, whoever? Is it their responsibility to craft a story that that makes them relatable? That's to me. That's who's responsible. It's not the person who's struggling, who's doing these things, who's leading their community and and contributing and advancing their cause that they need to make themselves relatable to another different population. It's the person who's giving them that platform. That's their responsibility to editorialize that, to edit that story and say, how can I, how can I impress upon my audience that this person's struggle is also your struggle? It's your history, right? We talk about black history. And I think it's like this, this, there's this like compartmentalization of like Canadian history. And then there's this black history part. And I'm like, black history is Canadian history. It's that's, they're not two separate things just because it's February. Like it's part of our history. Yeah, it's beautifully said. Uh, Andrew, I, you know, we, we've got a, a comment here from Kim who subscribed to us on YouTube. She's watching live. She says, you know, curriculum, uh, especially in Alberta, Alberta's curriculum is the burning issue. We cannot afford to overlook. She says it's being stripped down to bare bones uh, when it comes to teaching black history and, and informing or inspiring or enlightening the next generation uh, of our contributors to this society. I mean, how much of that falls on you as an individual and how much faith do you have in the bigger process that an adequate, uh, I mean, that's a weird way to a word word to use. How do you define that? That's subjective, but that there's a meaningful amount of black history being taught in Canadian classrooms. 
to answer your question, is it, and I'll use your words, is is it adequate? It's it's not adequate at all. We're not where we need to be in terms of educating the youth about what's happening in the culture, what the experiences that are happening within a community right now. Um, you know, we talked about 2020 at the top of this show. 2020 for me, and I never lived in that time frame, but 2020 is starting to look like 1960 when the movement was originated and where people were starting to talk and colleges were having protests and teachers were getting vocal and politicians were being held accountable. Now in terms of curriculum, um, I mean, we have our issues here in this province. I mean, some folks were trying to, to wash the history of the residential schooling system. And I think that's detrimental to our community. Uh, I, I spent about a year's time in Germany when I was playing basketball and I went to Berlin and in Berlin, they have like a Holocaust memoriam. And everywhere you walk in Berlin, you can find some piece of history that acknowledges what happened during that period of time. Now, for whatever reason in Alberta, I'm not sure if that's a political thing or if that's a community thing, but some folks are afraid to acknowledge what happened because they thinks it makes them look bad. This isn't about feelings. This isn't about ego. This is about educating the youth. This is about making the population more educated so they can make more informed decisions, be better voters and be better citizens. Um, my suggestion to the people who are in charge of curriculum is to please have authentic voices at those tables. We don't need folks that are handpicked to be there to follow whatever political agenda that's being placed out there. Um, if there is a political agenda, we need folks who could actually speak to these communities. Um, we need representation in the classroom. I mean, having one or two black teachers in a, in a 45% black population school, that's not enough. We need to actively find out university students and get them into the profession if they want to be teachers. Um, I would also acknowledge just a few things here, like instead of just posting a picture, post a job opportunity. Um, instead of, you know, adding a profile, support the people who are actually doing the work. Um, in addition to supporting allies, become one. Um, and in, in addition to addressing issues, devise solutions. There are very intelligent people in education. Unfortunately, sometimes ignorance gets mixed up with that intelligence. And then that causes a big problem in terms of communication with other communities. So my thoughts for the, the viewer who had that question about curriculum and not feeling like you have those supports, please shout out to us, like connect with us. We'll help you as best as we can, but we're only doing this work because we're waiting for others to step up. Like I, if, 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 the higher ups in education were at that rally and were able to speak, then I wouldn't have to say anything. And that's what I'm hoping for in the future is that eventually people, ministers of education or whoever that is, like, let's address the elephant in the room, um, systemic racism, anti-racism, discrimination. Let's put it all on the table and let's find a solution. Sam Hardy. You know, Andrew. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. I was just going to say, you talked about, you know, why is it that we don't talk about some of these things? Is there like an uncomfortability uh, with, you know, talking about some of the subjects? And I think one of the most profound one of the most like profound books that i read last year in 2020 was by isabel wilkerson and it's called cast um uh and it it can play it basically compares the uh the system of 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 racial the the systemic racist uh racial system that exists in the united states with the indian caste system and actually 
proposes that it is actually a caste system that is in place in the United States. And at the very beginning of the book, she makes this wonderful analogy that sort of touches on the idea that people have when we start to talk about history and they say, well, you know, I, that, why is that on me? I feel I don't sh I, I shouldn't have to feel guilty about things that happened in the past. And, you know, I, why are we focused on all these negative things and all of this stuff? And she makes this wonderful analogy equating, in her case, America, so the U.S., with a house, and she calls it, it's an old house. So it's an old house. Um, and when she, she has this passage where she says, you know, not one of us was here when this house was built. Our immediate ancestors may have had nothing to do with it, but here we are, the current occupants of a property with stress cracks and bowed walls and fissures built into the foundation. We are the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars or joists, but they are ours to deal with now. And any further deterioration is, in fact, on our hands. Right. And so if you don't address that, if you don't look at the problems inherent in your society, if you don't want to deal with them because you're worried about guilt, then guess what? They get worse and they metastasize. And then you have to deal with a much greater problem further on down the road just because you were trying to avoid being uncomfortable. Well, and I think that that Eric, it's so beautiful that you're 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 introducing this idea at this point in our conversation as as we ease into wrapping it up. We always on this show, we want to create a culture of of, of, of a call to action where after we have these longer form conversations and after we investigate these issues and after we take on questions that in some circumstances can hit us squarely between the eyes and, and for, force us to, to to sort of examine our innermost and our longest held beliefs and assumptions and everything else. So what? Like, what do we walk away with? How does this change our behavior or change our attitude or 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 improve um, the perspective that we teach our kids or, or pass on to our friends? So so in that context, uh, Sam, I, I love what Eric just said, that Black History Month. Yes, uh, uh, an important uh, assignment and, and a valuable exercise to look back and to learn about history and learn from history, but also to look forward and to plot out a course and to challenge ourselves to to be better. I mean, what we do every single day becomes history, obviously. Yeah, I think there's a few things I've seen um, or I've been a part of that have been really, really heartening for me. So I'll, I'll give an example. I, I'm, I'm, I'm because of what I do. I'm a big believer in the fact that things will not change until black people are involved in policymaking and it's not that there are not competent black people who are ready to be part of the conversation. It's that the doors have been shut to them. Opportunities have not been available or presented in a manner that uh, they can take them up. I have a friend who is a CEO of an association calls me and says, look, I've got this role. It's, but I, I want, I want to hire a black person. And, and I, you know, I take that on, reach out to my networks, I help identify someone. And this is happening, I believe, all over the country. And I think it's incumbent on those of us, white and black, who are at the table to find ways of opening those doors and creating those opportunities for black professionals. There are other ways this is being done. This is sort of my little small piece of the pie. I think it's incredibly important. There are also little things, and I'll give the black woman perspective here because I'm obviously the only one here who's black and a woman. But 
I grew up playing with dolls with straight blonde hair and blue eyes. I have neither. I mean, the grays now are coming out, so maybe it's a little bit closer, but I have neither of those things. And that was my concept of beauty. That was my concept of professionalism. I worked on Parliament Hill for seven years. Well, almost 10, actually, until I started wearing my hair the way it appears now. I had a conversation with a white colleague who said to me, why don't you wear your hair curly? And I said, oh, it's not professional. And I genuinely believed that wasn't because that's not what I saw. And I think, so I have a niece now who's also half German. And I, my sister and I make it a point to ensure that my niece has black dolls to play with, with curly hair. And that she has books where she sees black children because that representation in every facet is incredibly is incredibly important. I wear my hair curly as a statement for other black girls, well, for myself, first of all, but also as a statement for other black girls. This is a professional look, and it's important for them to see themselves in the boardroom, on the television screen, in the media, and so on and so forth. So there is important work that Eric and Andrew are, and others are doing. This is my small, my small piece of the pie. And I think that um, that white and black Canadians and non-white and non-black Canadians across this country are doing a little bit to open the doors a little bit wider for non for non-white professionals and youth. And I could list off a ton of organizations and individuals, and I know that's not the purpose of this show, but it's a small step. We just cannot lift our, our feet off the gas. And I think that's the most important thing here. What happened this summer cannot be sort of a summer conversation like the summer hit song. And then we move on to something else. And I'm, it's great that there are people like Eric and Andrew and others that are, that are doing the work. But it's not for just Black people to do this work. It is for non-Canadians to, non-white, non-Black Canadians to really jump on board um, and take a stand. Emhart, you, you know, at the very beginning of this meeting, you said you were cautiously optimistic about what is going to happen. And that cautious optimism is something I think we all at, at like all three of us at this table and many of our, our fellow black folk feel because it's a, it's a question of energy on the part of the people who are not us. Mm-hmm. You know, we are fighting to live our lives and that gives us the energy to, to that, that's what motivates us. But it's the people who don't have to fight, who lose that energy. And they're the ones who are some of the most important people about making that change happen. And we are cautiously optimistic because we've seen that energy wane before. We've seen it, you know, burn up like a huge bright flame and then it just goes out and then we're left with incremental change and told not yet, maybe in the future. And how many generations have been told that? Not yet, maybe wait a bit, maybe in the future. That's a Baldwin quote, right? You know, my grandmother, my aunt, my, my, my great grandmother, they were all told to wait. And I have to ask, what am I, how long am I waiting? I love that. Uh, and, and Samhar, you're that, that, that like resonated with me. We like, this can't be like the summer hit song. 
Um, and we think back to there have been these other moments. Um, I, I think of Idle No More as an obvious uh, uh, example in Canada as well. I mean, that was probably, what, 10 years ago now? And and we look at, at how many indigenous communities and First Nations are still looking for what you could describe as meaningful progress on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And, and I mean, there's so many conversations uh, and, that need to lead to action in Canada right now, let alone across the rest of the world. Um, Andrew, I want to I want to put some pressure on your shoulders because I know you can handle it. We've, we've all seen <laughs> we've all seen you. You wanted the ball. You wanted the ball at the end of the game with three seconds left on the clock down one. You wanted it. You don't mind the pressure. What do you Not want us all. to uh, what do you want us to walk with into the weekend and, and for the rest of this month and beyond? You know, one of my favorite songs from the previous civil rights movement was We Shall Overcome. But one of my favorite lyrics in that song is we'll walk hand in hand and we are not afraid. I want to speak to our allies right now. This is the time that we walk hand in hand and this is the time where we are not afraid because in the end, the beginning phrase of that song is we shall overcome. And then in the end, they come right back to it and say, we shall overcome one day. And guess what, guys? Our ancestors were asking for that one day. Our contemporaries are asking for that one day. And the beautiful youth that I had an amazing opportunity to talk to yesterday at Skona High School were looking for that one day. Let's make that one day a day very soon. And I want to say shout out to the city of Edmonton, shout out to the province of Alberta, and shout out to all of the allies who bravely are ready to walk hand in hand with the black community. That's Andrew Parker, uh, an educator, a community activist, former pro athlete, co-founder of the Black Teachers Association. Eric Doman has joined us, an analyst, uh, a photographer. You have to follow him on Instagram and check out his work there. Uh, absolutely marvelous. And of course, conservative strategist, a public affairs consultant, Semhar Takes. Thank you so much to the three of you. This has been a, a, just a wonderful hour. Thanks, Thanks so, so much. much for having us. Yeah, you thank bet. you so much, Ryan. And thank you for doing your work, brother. We know you're down with us, man. We love you so much, man. You got it. Thanks. Real talk, brother. You know Real it. Talk. Real talk. Real talk. We commit to it. And we look forward to having all three of you back on the show down the line. Thank you. And have a wonderful weekend. Um, boy. What do you say about those three? Unbelievable conversation. Um, we're really grateful, of course, that these conversations come about as a result of our partnerships, those that have joined us on this journey. And we ask you to show them your support and, 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 and you know, send a few dollars their way when you're going to be investing in things like your outdoor spaces. Maybe you want to overhaul your front yard, maybe a new flower box, maybe some planters on the front of the house, or maybe you want to redo the entire backyard like a smoker maybe or a big barbecue station outdoor kitchen maybe a swim spa sam brooks is like audibly indicating his agreement with the picture i'm painting here like i don't know if i could go for a swim spa but you have me at barbecue and smoke well that's fine i will sit in the swim spot while you smoke the brisket okay, for done. us how's that i will do that okay sure. see everybody can get along when you deal with eden landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. They've been doing it for more than 20 years and they'd love to work with you to make your dream come true. Also encourage you to take your business to Park Power. Why? Number one, because they take 10% of their profits and they plug them back into the community. They give back to charity. I love that they do that. And number two, you got to pay somebody for your electricity, natural gas, and internet. Why not make it Park Power at parkpower.ca if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK. They're going to give you 70 
80 bucks off your first bill. Doesn't have to be commercial, doesn't have to be residential, can be one or the other, or heck, maybe even both at parkpower.ca. There's also the team at Alta Moving and Storage, and they know that moving is stressful. They don't try to hide the fact that even the word moving can cause some people to tense up. Well, that's where they come in. They're locally owned and locally operating, so they love to deal with you on a personal level and make sure that you get the solution that you need with these pod-style containers. Move at your own pace, plus solve any issues around short or long-term storage at Alta Moving and Storage. They've got you covered. You can check them out online at altastorage.ca, or if you like, give them a call at 780-993-ALTA. That's the team at Alta Moving and Storage. We ready to rock? Okay. You betcha. This is uh, a spinoff, or let me say it's follow-up to a conversation that we had yesterday on the show. We're talking, obviously, about food waste, and we were following the story out of Portland, Oregon. We know this story is far from limited to Portland, Oregon, but of course, the Fred Meyer grocery store there lost power along with hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, tens of thousands of homes did as well. Part of these rolling blackouts. They've hit Texas. They've hit Oregon and other states. It meant that hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of food were being thrown into dumpsters. And individuals, uh, community activists, including Dr. Juniper Simonis, who joined us yesterday, were there. At first, you imagine some of them to try to get their hands on some of this food. We're talking prime rib and and fresh produce and dairy and some of the so-called luxury items that those on a fixed income or those living in poverty might not otherwise be able to afford. Well, of course, the police are called by the team at Fred Meyer. And the next thing you know, as I described it yesterday, you have a Banksy painting of 12 police officers guarding a dumpster full of food outside a supermarket. Well, many of you reacted to our story. As we told you, the video clip of me talking to Dr. Simonis is our most viewed clip in the history of the show, closing in on 150,000 views if it's not there already. And many of you reached out and said you need to talk about what we can do or what people are doing about food waste. Well, enter the Leftovers Foundation. They're operating in Calgary and Edmonton. And of course, we know we're going to be able to talk about models elsewhere around the world. Uh, Garnet Borch is is, uh, one of the, uh, well, he's one of the straws that stir the drink over there, making things happen. And we're grateful that he's taken time to join us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk, my friend. Thanks so much. Yeah, what a what a joy to join. Thanks you know, very much. Well, this is a conversation. I know this is something that you and the team there uh, feel very passionately about. I, I'm telling you, I was watching these videos um, shot by our guest Juniper yesterday of the, these dumpsters just spilling out thousands and thousands of pounds of food and i felt it in my gut it made me feel sick what do you guys do and what drives you to do it yeah i also watched some of those videos and it's ridiculous and i think a lot of us have that like gut reaction like this is wrong and uh and that's kind of how leftovers uh, got started back in 2012 our founder lorda swan um was at a bakery and they were throwing out food and she rescued it took it to a local service agency and that's how Leftovers got started. And now, eight years later, we rescue about 500,000 of food each year uh, between Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, and Hinton, Alberta as well. Um, and uh, we have a community of volunteers who picks up vol- food that would otherwise go to waste from food donors that might be grocery stores, bakeries, cafes, um, restaurants, that's good quality food that they can't sell and would otherwise have to throw out. And our volunteers take that food to local service agencies 
where it can be made use of uh, to you know help people who are having difficulty accessing food. So you did you say five hundred thousand pounds of food a year? Is that what I heard you say? That's right. Yeah. So this in twenty twenty in twenty twenty. So you see buy in obviously from a number of different groups. How do these relationships typically come about? I mean, is it people reaching out to you? Are you cold calling restaurants, grocery stores, bakeries? Are are people typically willing to participate? Yeah, good question. It's it's a range. Uh, it can come about many different ways. Of course, we love it when organizations contact us and they say, hey, you know, we're having this issue with throwing out regular, you know, food on a regular basis. And we'd love to find out how we can uh, get that to people in need. Uh, and sometimes we're also cold calling. And uh, when we are cold calling, I'd say a lot of the organizations are like, yes, we'd love to help out and would love to participate. Um, especially the more like local uh, grassroots initiatives. Some of the larger organizations have uh, liability concerns or um, operational concerns, uh, or a lot of them are also already donating. You know, we're not the only ones rescuing food out there. Um, but yeah, it can come about a variety of ways, and we love it when organizations contact us. This must uh, afford you an opportunity to to be able to understand the plight of, of so many people that are either living in poverty or just barely getting by people that are making sacrifices. I had one of our uh, viewers reach out to me yesterday. She wants to help spearhead on a volunteer basis, a food drive uh, that we're going to commit yeah. to that real Talk's going to participate in. And, and she said, there's a very, uh, her name's Allie. She says, the reason why I'm committing to this is because we utilize the food bank at, at, at times through my life. She says, I've gone hungry before to make sure that my kids could get fed you must hear these firsthand accounts all the time yeah certainly it's been uh so my background i'd say is more environmental and since i started with leftovers in march it's been really eye-opening uh to the world of food insecurity and uh i'm not going to pretend that we solve food insecurity at leftovers it's uh, more of a band-aid solution because food food insecurity when people are having difficulty accessing food that is a symptom of poverty. It's, you know, nothing short of that. So giving people free food is great that, you know, gives them temporary access to food, but it doesn't ultimately solve their problems. And it's uh, really heartwarming when we are able to get these food to people in need. Um, we work with about 30 different agencies in Edmonton who are uh, working to, you know, help our community. And when we hear back from them, that they say, yeah, our clients so much appreciate this food. It means so much to them, especially when it's coming from a local farmer's market. For example, a Pregnancy Pathways is one of the organizations we work with. Where they're a support shelter for women in, uh, who are homeless and uh, going through pregnancy. And um, they are having difficulty accessing food at all. And when we can get them not only food, but healthy, nutritious food that helps them in so many ways on their general well-being it, it means a lot to us uh, i want to remind people that they can check out rescuefood.ca um garnet this is uh like you you mentioned something you said that there may be i can't remember the exact words you used but like some safety concerns or security concerns from bigger organizations and one of the things that we had to address to be reasonable and to be fair in trying to wrap our minds around the fred meyer story is that there's obviously probably protocols probably the health department would be there to a certain degree there's obviously concerns around taking things that could spoil uh you know like dairy or perishables certain meats and, and giving them to people that could ultimately get sick there are these considerations that have to happen can you take us into how that process works to ensure that yeah people are getting fed but but also no one's getting sick yeah that's a, it's a tricky one 
and it was in particularly interesting in that Fred Meyer case. Uh, but essentially, in Alberta, and most uh, municip- or most uh, governments will have some kind of act like this. There's a uh, food donations act that protects donors, food donors, from uh, any liability as long as the food is safe to eat. So as long as the you know fooder is kept at the proper temperature and uh, it doesn't have uh, mold on it, and it isn't too far past past its best before date. Side note: best before date is not an expiry date. Yes. Uh, you can still safely eat food beyond its best before date. Um, but uh, yeah, so as long as it meets uh, these guidelines that are laid out on our website and by Alberta Health Services, um, then the donor is protected from any liability. That um, That's such an important distinction that you made that the best before date is different than an expiry date. Yeah. And I've 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 put, con- I've put I've put controversial opinions out there before on yogurt, um, and I'm not going to go into it. But let me just say that I I believe the yogurt dates to be very flexible. Um, but but I got to be careful what I put out here. Let me just say that's a personal perspective. But but I think it's so important because we wrap our minds or we try to wrap our minds around the root of this problem. And it seemed like as part of our conversation yesterday on the show, almost everybody could agree. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if you if you disagree, you're wrong. Everybody could agree that food waste is an enormous problem. And what did you call it, Sam? I think you said you believed it to be one of the I most. Think it's, I think it's the world's most solvable problem. The world's most solvable problem. Garnet, would you agree? Oh, I hope so. Uh, I mean, I like like we started off like, you know, people, everybody feels that in their gut. Everybody knows that that's a problem. Um, and I think that that is like then also leads to making it one of the most solvable problems. And that's what I love about working for leftovers is it's not a contentious issue for anybody. It's like, hey, we shouldn't be throwing food out. Everybody's like, yeah, we shouldn't be throwing food out. Uh, so it's really motivating. And I, I absolutely agree. And um, I'm not sure if you've heard of uh, Project Drawdown. Um, they did a uh, you know great big research study on the solutions to climate change. And the number one solution to climate change is reducing food waste because globally we throw out a third of our food. So not only the greenhouse gas emissions that produces that, but also the land that we use to uh, to farm that food. Uh, we could save so much resources by not throwing out food. What you said that you've been with this agency now coming up on a year approximately. Yeah, that's right. What what uh, how has your attitude or how have your habits uh, changed as a result of working here? You know what? I've been really passionate about food waste uh, on my own in at home for uh, for years, and I uh, really love when there's produce that's you know on its edge in the fridge, and I'm like, ooh, how can I make use of this? Yeah, uh, that's that's always been really fun for me, and it spurs some real fun creativity in the kitchen. Can we can we talk about that? I would love to have some fun with that. I mean, I know typically people, <laughs> the classic example I think of is uh, is bananas and everybody jokes about how every single person has like 40 bananas in their freezer because they have plans mm-hmm. to make banana bread. Um, I personally think that strawberries are the best right before they rot. There's that sweet, mm-hmm. sweet spot of about 24 hours where you get a strawberry just beautifully. But what are some of mm-hmm. your what are some of your kitchen hacks as you have produce that's about to turn? Mm. Something I love doing is uh, veggie burgers uh, because you put like a, a protein source in there. So call it like lentils or beans, uh, something of the like. And then you can just mash in any produce that's going in. So it could be kale. It could be zucchini. It could be carrots. It could be potatoes. And it's a really good way to like get it in there. Uh, and then you can mix it up, uh, make your patties and then freeze it. And uh, for months, you're having this like simple, quick, nutritious meal uh, straight out of the freezer. And 
reducing the amount of uh, produce you have to throw out. How do That's you? A great one. Th- that is a great one. How do you manage the food you bring into your home? Like as opposed to, you know, I mean, some people you can imagine do these massive grocery shops. You shop when you're hungry, you bring home way more food than you're possibly going to be able to eat. And a lot of it is going to spoil. How do you approach mm-hmm. shopping? Meal planning is a great solution. Uh, it's a simple one. Uh, just, you know, looking at your week and being like, hey, okay, what what foods am I making? Rather than going to the grocery store and saying, do I like carrots? Yes, I like carrots. And then you bring home a bag of carrots and a bag of uh, lettuce and then, you know, oh, okay, carrots and lettuce, you know, there's only one meal I can make with that and tossing the rest of the lettuce. So if you, if you know exactly what you're making and planning exactly what, uh, what, um, yeah, planning exactly the meals that you're making for the week, that, that helps. Another great tip is to look up the storage, um, like the storage suggestions for the different types of food and really maximizing the, the life in your fridge. Uh, or the respective produce, because uh, you can really extend the life for some of them. Did I see uh, something? I mean, Lourdes Juan, by the way, the founder of the group that, that you're representing here, Leftovers Foundation, I, I'm pretty sure she's on the board of directors of this group we talked to yesterday, Look Forward Calgary. Um, she wasn't on our panel yesterday, but she is affiliated with the group. She's a real mover mm-hmm. and shaker. I mean, uh, a formidable mm-hmm. uh, community contributor uh, and the like, and people can search her story. Did I see something that she posted the other day? I have a vague memory, but did your van get stolen or something went missing or you guys are in a, in a problem solving mode right now? Am I, am I remembering this correctly? You know what? I'm not sure. I truth be told, I've been on vacation for the last week. So I sure oh, hang hope on. the van hasn't gone missing. Okay. <laughs> Can you imagine if I'm breaking this news to you on this podcast? Uh, here it is, uh, Sam. I've just called up her tweet. Oh, uh, the fresh routes truck broke down. And they need help. Oh, yeah. Okay, so donate to the GoFundMe if we can help with the Fresh Routes truck. Is that a, is that a totally different thing? It's a it's our sister organization. So ah. Fresh Routes spurred out of leftovers. Another uh, way to address food insecurity is uh, this um, low cost uh, mobile grocery store selling fresh produce. And yeah, we're in close contact. A lot of the same leadership. And uh, they, yeah, unfortunately, the truck broke down, and uh, we did have to rent a van to in the meantime but the the van is one expensive and two too small for us so as soon as we get that truck back on the road we'll be in much better shape good stuff so are you are you uh you're volunteer supported and are you donor supported is that how this thing keeps going yeah uh so uh i mean are yeah very much volunteer powered as you say the volunteers are t- really transporting the food and we're so grateful that people are uh are donating their time to do that uh, and then uh, we also get a lot of grant money uh, because it's such a uh, interdisciplinary issue when we're addressing food insecurity and food waste at the same time. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, it's another source of funding. And then individual donors are also very much appreciated, corporate donors. Um, we have a, a lot of support that we're really grateful for. Well, I think this is, I mean, they're, they're, you're going to be speaking to people at a bunch of different levels here. There's probably somebody watching right now that feels five grand burning a hole in their pocket there, there's probably somebody right now that owns a restaurant or some sort of outlet that could c- contribute by way of donation and there are probably some people right now that could really use the help and everybody sure. can f- learn more at rescuefood.ca uh garnet before we thank you for your time and let you get back to your vacation um i, I, I want i always want to recognize these things and take real talkers take our podcast subscribers and our youtube subscribers behind the curtains um i sent you an email uh, yesterday and i got your out of office 
reply that let us know that you were on a well-deserved vacation and you were going to get back to us on Monday. And I thought that sounds perfectly reasonable and that sounds perfectly fine. And we'll talk about this on Monday. And then 10 minutes later, I hear from you and you say, I'll make an exception for real talk. And I went, boy. So now that, we, <laughs> now that we've got you here, is there anything that we missed that you think is really important, either high level conceptual stuff or info on the ground? Uh, you know, I feel like we've covered a really good uh, span of, of the issues of food waste, and it's a complex issue. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm just really grateful that we had the opportunity to, to speak and to, to to spread the good word and to you know start spreading the conversation. Well, right. you know what? I'm going to tag one thing. Yeah, we started a webinar in uh, in Edmonton called Waste Ed. So it's called the Waste Ed webinar, and we're exploring food waste in Edmonton. So it individuals who are interested in learning more about what's happening with regards to food waste and uh, helping us discover where food is still being wasted in Edmonton. We're doing a monthly webinar and you can keep an eye on our social media for more information on that. Love it. That's Garnet Borch, the group uh, Leftovers Foundation, Leftovers Rescue Food. You can read more at rescuefood.ca and follow them on social media. Thanks for breaking your vacation to talk to us. Now get back to relaxing, my friend. Thanks a bunch, Ryan. All right, Garnet. Thanks so much. That's great. Uh, really appreciate that. We, we always want to, when, when we find, uh, you know, we get into conversations and, and it touches on something where we go, how can we expand this or how can we, like, this is not going to be the show that just fills time. You know, we're going to bring people on to fill time. We want to have conversations that matter. We want to take issues like food insecurity and then try to figure out uh, in some circumstances how we might be able to. I loved how Semhar, you know, in our Black History Month uh, panel there, the Friday Roundtable, Sam, she was just she said, now, this is just my little thing that I'm doing. That's not taking away from the effort. It's not saying that they're tiny efforts. But if every single person took on an assignment uh, and we're bringing this community that gathers every single morning and we leave here with these assignments, we'll call it our homework. I mean, think of the impact that we can have. You assign a lot of homework. Uh, but no, <clears throat> that, that I, I think my mom likes to tell me about uh, everybody has their sphere of influence. And I think Semhar touched on that very, very well. It's just like you kind of look at the community that you can affect. You look at the things that are right there in front of you in your life and say, how can I make an impact right now? How can I use my personal sphere of influence to to affect change in in an incremental but positive way yeah so very i absolutely well get that very well said um this is uh martin says i cooked with donated food for two summers at youth empowerment support services it's uh for those of you outside of the metro edmonton region that's basically previously known as the youth emergency shelter um it says it teaches you really well how to cope with food and food waste the team at yes does just absolutely amazing work uh, heidi says uh this is great advice compost 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 you don't need a large garden to grow a significant amount of food this is great i'm dropping in on the live chat here and by the way if you watch our youtube um show later in the day i mean you can go back and watch our entire archive obviously you'll be able to follow the live chat as it was live while we were doing the show which i think is a lot of fun i mean sometimes you know the we'll call it the chatterbox sometimes they're on point and focused and sometimes i'll drop in and they're talking about you know i mean like raisins, raisins. are this yeah i don't know what it is with raisins and this group um y'all are twisted in the best most weird and wonderful way uh i'd be curious to know we'll have to do like sort of a twitter poll sometime or maybe we'll actually twist we'll give the team at y station a break from the seriousness at some point and we could do our entire question of the week on things like controversial food debates should we do another bracket 
You could do a bra- well. Brackets are interesting. I think that was a lot of work for Y Station. Okay, the bracket. Well, we won't do another they, they bracket. F- well, yeah. they're not afraid of hard work, but I, yeah, I don't know. But you know, raisins uh, for some reason seem to be divisive. As far as I'm concerned, there's only one right answer, and that is obviously pro raisin. Um, there's, I would agree. There's the there are the people who I I pity because obviously something happened to them in life to 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 pollute their perspective, and these these people believe that the beautiful fruit. That, that is pineapple does not belong on the beautiful food that is pizza and hogwash. it's hogwash of course pineapple belongs on pizza what do you, what is wrong with you but we could get into this as part of our y station question of the week in the meantime why don't i remind you that you still have a couple of days to check in on our question of the week you just go to ryanjesperson.com this week uh we're hoping to hear from you know 1500 of you uh we say lockdowns and restrictions are becoming a public debate with developments of new covid variants and some headlines on the political front in this week's Real talk, get real question of the week presented by Y Station. We want to know what activities you would be comfortable with at this point and what you're going to avoid. And I'm looking forward to seeing where real talkers take that one. Speaking of COVID protocols, have you seen Alberta Premier Jason Kenney's Facebook post? I, I want to, we can just go through this. It's, I'm just going to take you, I don't have like a big um, point to make here, except I'm just going to drop in on the comments. On the premier's post, I don't know which comments we're going to see. I'm just going to drop in, but this was wild. I want to give credit to Charles Rosnell, who does an amazing job as an investigative journalist at the CBC. He said he tweeted yesterday afternoon. He said, "Just check out the comments on Jason Kenney's Facebook post. That's all it said." And I went, "Okay." So, real talkers, if you have not yet done it. Come now with me. I feel like Mr. Dress Up or like Mr. Rogers. Come with me into the through the polka dot door and onto Facebook here where we'll check out the Premier of Alberta's Facebook post. So he goes in and he says questions have been raised this week about freedom of worship and religion in Alberta. He says, I know and you got to consider Premier's base, right? Like, where does he get a ton of support from? It's from these evangelical churches and groups and from other people but all i'm saying is all i'm reiterating and you can be an evangelical christian or you can be an atheist i think you both have to agree with me the evangelical base is extremely important to alberta's premier he says i know how important faith is to many people's lives i want to be absolutely clear alberta's government will always respect and protect the fundamental freedoms of religion and worship period okay now you can read the whole thing i'm not going to read the whole thing He goes on to say, just yesterday, I joined many fellow believers at an Edmonton church to participate in Ash Wednesday observances. You know, Jason Kenney is a man of faith. He says, I saw how volunteers and clergy took great care to protect the health of parishioners, broader community by following public health guidelines while continuing to exercise their religious freedom, just as thousands of congregations are doing across the province. I want to thank faith communities for doing so. As a Christian, says the premier, I call on fellow believers to be guided by the principle of the sanctity of human life in how we act during this pandemic. He goes on to talk about how, unlike other jurisdictions, Alberta has sought to implement legislation that constitutes a minimal impairment of freedom of worship. Okay? Now, I am just looking at these. I I did not pick out. I didn't cherry pick comments. I didn't go for the nastiest ones. I'm just dropping in and seeing the first ones that come to mind. And there is a common theme, and it's remarkable. Travis says, time to separate. This is Alberta, not China. We don't throw pastors in jail and you call yourself a Christian. And I'll tell you something else, JK, says Travis. Brian Jean would have never let things get this bad. You suck. 
Kevin Wilson says, while your words sound good, Mr. Kenny, you've not addressed the unlawful imprisonment of Pastor Coates. No, I do not attend his church, but I'm a firm supporter of our charter rights, releasing tried and convicted felons based on COVID risk. But treating this man as a felon and jailing him is wrong. Gordon, the very next comment. Sorry, Jason, not buying it. No matter how you spin it, a pastor was arrested and jailed for practicing his religion. Nothing more. The public health benefits are dubious and out of proportion with the price being paid. Mandy, very next comment. Free Pastor James Coates. Maybe then people might believe you. Is it really freedom if the condition of his release is that he stopped preaching? We're not China. Quit arresting pastors for preaching. Very next comment from Joanne. This is overreach, Jason. They're all calling him Jason, by the way. State has no business in the government of the church. The arrest of Pastor James Coates for freely practicing his faith is diametrically opposed to your statement. Again, when you ask the Chinese how they live in a communist country, blah, 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 blah. Brian, very next comment. They are not flagrantly violating anything. They're exercising their inalienable right, American language, afforded under the Charter of Rights. You you should be jailed, says Brian to the premier, for trying to limit those rights. And I hope the pastor sues you. Dustin, very next comment. Fact is, man, say all you want, but churches of any kind of religious belief should be allowed to open up. Flat out going to say it, says Dustin. You guys are really fucking this up for yourselves. The only way out now is to open up the public. Stephen, very next comment, locking up preachers. For, okay, so you get the idea. <laughs> like I could keep going and keep you. So what time is the next leadership review? Asking for a friend, uh, you know, a time to stop playing God. You have no control over this virus. Uh, you know, you are prolonging the suffering by restricting our livelihoods. I, I say that's enough. And then I go right back to it because I like I can't stay away. Comment after comment after comment after not a single person that's actually taking issue with the fact that hundreds of people are gathering in defiance of public health orders. Every single comment is ripping Kenny for the fact that this martyr, this pastor is in jail right now because he's refused to heed multiple warnings issued by Alberta health services and by the RCMP. You might say, well, Ryan, what's the point of sharing this with you? It's just fascinating. It gives you some real insight into what. No, it's not easy for any political leader right now through this pandemic, to say the very least. You know, Brian Jean actually you, you, you read that that commenter there referenced Brian Jean. His his column uh, a week or two ago was was remarkable. It was an open letter that he wrote to Alberta's premier on on what he believes he needs to do better. Now, of course, Brian Jean is was the target of the alleged kamikaze campaign. Brian Jean and Jason Kenny are not friends, although I don't speak for either of them. Um, but Brian Jean probably still has a knife right between his two shoulder blades as he's trying to sort of sort that out right now. We asked him to come on the show. He says, I'm going to let my column speak for itself, which it does. And you can Google it. There's a curious couple sentences in there when he touches on the premier's health. And he says, you know, you need to get more sleep and you need to eat better and I was talking to a couple friends of mine, political strategists, and I said, that was a that was a that was a bit of a curious swipe. That one there. Like, you know, can you imagine if anyone said that about a female politician for starters or any politician? I mean, I thought that was a little bit of a risk. And the common theme what the common understanding was, yeah, it was a bit of a, a weird take there for Brian Jean on that. Those couple of sentences there. He did probably giggle as he wrote it and wanted to get in a little swipe, a little chin music, a little shot. But what these strategists also pointed out is that it is obvious that there has been a physical strain on many politicians and elected officials and, and disaster management of you can see it you can see the strain on their faces you can see it's exhausting i mean how do you balance policy and we've talked about this on the show i don't think that there's a right answer 
Those of you that are going to say you need to lock everything down, I'm going to disagree with you. And those of you that say you need to open everything up, I'm going to disagree with you. And it's not an easy decision. But what interesting insight to see comment after comment after comment hammering the premier for not fully opening up all the houses of worship. There are so many layers that go into making these decisions. To whom are the politicians beholden? That is the question we must continue to ask. I wanted to read a couple of emails before we get into trash talk, which is how we wrap our show every Friday. We blow off a little steam. We have a little fun. We give you a chance to go NC-17, use the language you want, and, 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 and vent and that's how we wrap our show on a Friday. We send you into the weekend. We hope with a bit of a chuckle. Uh, we hope with a bit of a bee in your bonnet if it belongs there. And reason, of course, to, con- to continue to tune in here and continue to correspond with us. Now, now Rory Skirfield has sent this email from Scotland where he watches us every day, which is absolutely amazing. And he, and he says it's he says, here's epic trash talk, but it's articulate and it's a little longer. And I thought it, if I'm going to do it in the monster truck voice, it's going to take I'm going to burn myself out. So I thought maybe I could just read it per per normal here. So this from Rory, first of all, thank you for tuning in from Scotland. That means a lot. He says, I've been increasingly impressed by the guests you're having on the show shining lights or there need to be shone your tirade at the conclusion of your chat earlier this week with blake desjardins about the houseless individuals in the transit station was awesome he said somebody needs to hold the police chief to account you know how the hell do we as a people dehumanize different folks so easily homeless uh, gender and sexual identities race color caste nationality ethnicity and so many more You know, every group has been treated so awfully, some more than others over the years without consequence to perpetrators. He says this happens, you know, before COVID, we would think of Friday and Saturday nights in pubs where, you know, people could just hang out and and banter. It doesn't happen anymore, says Rory. Online abuse prevails now. These big issues are behaviors too often exhibited by the so-called elites too, business leaders, politicians, various people in positions of influence. We need to hold people accountable. He says, can you help me understand? Keep in mind, he's from Scotland. He says, the Alberta government, he says, I can't ignore this story taking holidays abroad when everybody else is abiding by lockdown advice. How is your premier not getting dragged over the coals for that move? Wonders Rory. He might need to know where his cabinet is, that we're in this together. What is the outcome? Might he be voted out next time? He says, you know, Trump was never going to be found guilty in his impeachment. He says, we knew that both Democrats and Republicans would vote along party lines guaranteed he wouldn't have even been found guilty if he led the charge january 6th wearing only that viking headdress rory no thank you for that visual he says here in the uk we're in a similar boat ppe shortages under-equipped health services pushing forward with the catastrophe of brexit government error across the board but boris might be voted out later so it's okay it's no k says rory If the guys at the top of their chain get their comeuppance, we can only hope the effects filter down to the average folks and that these behaviors change for the better. He says your trash talk segment this week, no doubt, has written itself. I hate this planet sometimes, and I haven't even mentioned the vileness of Rush Limbaugh. He says it's great to see the show growing. We'll continue to tune in from Scotland. Best wishes, Rory. Amazing. And have a wonderful weekend to you, my friend. Thank you so very much. Got this from Kaylee Morissette who says, I've never written into a program before, but I'm a huge fan of Real Talk. It's made my COVID morning so much more interesting. It sparked my critical thinking. However, after your conversation with Blake Desjardins, I felt hopeless and angry. 
I've seen the videos from Sunday in Edmonton, Alberta, homeless citizens versus the videos out of Calgary, the anti-maskers at Chinook Center Mall, middle class, predominantly white. I'm at a loss for words. As an indigenous person originally from Saskatoon, I've grown up with the racism of police toward homeless or indigenous persons. I remember living in the city as police were dropping off indigenous people on the outskirts of town. These starlight tours, Ryan, that you referenced, this has never been a fair playing field. But the blatant systemic racism that was displayed to our citizens is cruel to the point where it it took my breath away. This has always been the society we live in. It just so happens it was captured on video so that it can no longer be denied nor ignored. Kaylee says, so what do we do? How do we make a difference? How do we hold these individuals, but more importantly, police leadership accountable and tell them enough is enough? How do we make these individuals remember the humanity in their job and to lay down these power trips against our most vulnerable enough lip service? How do we change the system? How do we turn it into action? Kaylee says, I don't have the answers today, but I wanted to thank you and Sam for being allies, using your platform for these discussions. As an indigenous woman, I am done with watching our people suffer and die because our lives are not as valued as members of our society. And it makes my heart hurt because we deserve better. But I'm left with the question on how we can make a difference without just being a spectator. Hi, hi, says Kaylee Morissette. Thank you. I'm just going to let the question percolate. Because I don't have an answer right now, but we'll continue to host these conversations and we make that commitment to you. We're grateful that we have partners that allow these conversations to, to happen. And that includes the team that was with us before the show had real estate, before the show had a name, before the show had a brand, before Sam was on the scene, before we had a website, let alone before we went on air. St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge have been with us the entire time. They've got the best lineup of the 2021 Jeeps in the province. And right now, whether it's the fuel-efficient Compass or that awesome Gladiator that everybody's talking about, maybe a Rubicon Wrangler, a seven-passenger Grand Cherokee, bang for buck, nobody beats the Grand Cherokee. And then that Grand Wagoneer, it's going to be six figures, but it's stunning. If you want to check those out ahead of time, maybe put in an order or see what they have on the lot, you're going to want to check out St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge clean air club more of you every single time i say send us your photos of the packages the the furnace filters arriving on your front door sam you see the emails oh yeah i see them talk at ryanjesperson.com i think yesterday we got two more people are saying hey our furnace filters have arrived cleanairclub.ca is where they're signing up it's super easy you tell them the size of the filter you need they hook you up next thing you know you're saving money your family's breathing easier what's more important than that cleanairclub.ca and of course we wrap our week thanking the team at local waste Buckle up, everybody. Local Waste for a quarter century has been going up against the big multinational garbage guys, and they've been earning the customer business one account at a time. They love to talk trash, as you know, and right now they'd love to talk to you about earning your business. So whether it's a small family business or whether you want a hotel or a shopping mall, they want to talk to you. You can give Chris or Lauren a call at 780-242-9746 or check out localwaste.ca. The team at Local Waste Services also obviously presents every Friday a little something we call Trash Talk. All right, kids, put on the earmuffs. This is where you get to say what you mean and mean what you say. These are emails sent through the week to talk at ryanjesperson.com like this one from Scott. Subject line just says, Ugh. 
Scott says, is it just me or is it time we start voting for politicians who actually give a shit about us? He says, I was enraged by the UCP and that Aloha Gate scandal and how the premier brushed it off like it was no big deal. And now Senator Ted Cruz flees his constituents for Cancun during a time when his constituents are suffering. Rage, says Scott. At what point will people realize the moneyed elite couldn't give a shit about us? At what point do we stop allowing career politicians and snake oil salesmen who enter the political arena for their own good rather than our collective good? Enough is enough. And Scott says, I hope that there's a reckoning for these types in the next election. That from Scott. What about this one from Aaron who says, I am now apparently on the side of Senators Batters and Plett. I don't know how often I've ever been before or ever wanted to be on their side. As a matter of fact, I do, says Aaron, zero times zero. As a matter of fact, I've often wished neither were in the Senate until today. Well, what changed my mind? Bill C-7. She's talking about medical assistance in dying. It passed because it's easier to give an out option when it comes to marginalized people as opposed to paying for meds or housing or supports made already existed. Now it's going to be a tool to remove society of the unpalatables, the hard to fund, the terribly inconvenient people who happen to have disabilities or difficult conditions who can't access them because they're so hard to access or afford. Whittled down to unlivable lives. It'll take less time to get made than adequate supports and the Senate just agreed it to a reasonable if not optimal solution. This was never a debate about choice in dying. It was a debate about the supports we offer to the most vulnerable and we fucking took the bait that it wasn't about that, says a furious Aaron. Thanks for your email, Aaron. How about this one from Paul who says the fact that the government of Alberta and AHS is using my tax dollars to take Fort McMurray to court over 911 dispatch really pisses me off. As clearly demonstrated on Real Talk through interviews with mayors and fire chiefs across Alberta, this is rot with issues. The government has demonstrated a level of arrogance that could easily compare to Donald Trump's leadership or lack thereof. These clowns have to go. From my perspective, the UCP received a majority government only in response to the NDP's piss-poor leadership early in Rachel Notley's tenure. The only time I voted for the Alberta NDP was in response to punting the PC bullies in 2015. Right now, I'd take the NDP back in a heartbeat. Paul voted UCP in 2019. He says my next vote will go to a party that promises a positive outlook and a bright future with a serious focus on the environment. A party that thinks beyond oil and gas and pipelines and anti-Alberta campaigns. I will cast my vote to a party that is politically in tune with a green and sustainable Canada. That from Paul. How about this one? Marie, out of all of us this week, might be the angriest. I think Marie might still be fuming and she sent to this on Tuesday to us. She says, I'm so mad I can hardly speak. Again, kids, earmuffs. Marie says, I'm a proud constituent of Livingston McLeod. Roger Reed is my MLA. He's not listening. He shut down this public accounts committee before it got started. They were going to call the Ministry of Energy and the Alberta Energy Regulator to appear before it to answer questions about coal mining. This government is so scared of pushback they're getting right now from the people they can't even discuss the concern. This is not a democracy, says Marie. This is the closest thing we've ever seen to a fascist regime. I'm sick of the way this government just closes its ears to the people. I don't usually support violence, but boy, I would love to say 
fuck you, Roger Reed, and fuck the UCP. That from Marie in Livingston McLeod. And this final one from Tyler, who says Albertans are starting to recognize they're being managed by a carpetbagger, a snake oil salesman, a guy that thinks that beta is going to make a comeback. I'm glad that platforms like Real Talk are engaging people and exposing people to the real issues facing Albertans and Canadians. So kudos to you and your team. That from Tyler. Kudos to you and kudos to everybody that took the time to send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Blow off a little steam this weekend. Spend some time with your loved ones and we'll talk to you live Monday morning at 8.30 Mountain Time.